Uh, this is Gabriel Hardman. And Corina Beckhouse. And you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. <laughs> That was a good one, Dap. Oh, thanks, man. You know, yeah. I want to make sure I kick it off strong. It's still early. It was clean. <laughs> clean and strong. Fresh and clean. Oh, my goodness. Oh, what a night. Thank you. Oh, what a night. I overdosed on, on Kelly books. Yeah, I'm you did. It. But it, it, was like a, it was a zero to... Well, not zero, but it was like maybe a 15 miles an hour to um, 108. I'm barreling down the highway. My car goes. Yeah, she just has a lot of fun. A lot. She's just got. I don't know. Her books just make me smile. This is very true. Yes, and I don't think lighthearted. Not to criticize you at all, because you know I love you. But I, I, someone dropped the word lighthearted, and I don't think they're lightheaded. I think they're human, which you know may scare a lot of people. And I said whimsical. And yes. I said okay. That's caveat a caveat that that uh, that I didn't, I, I like. I didn't know if it was the best word for it. I, I right. So we're good. We're gooch. Uh, yeah, we are. And I you're good it. too, because this, my friends, is Eleven O'clock Comics, episode five hundred and ninety-one, and I'm Vince B. You are Vince B, and I am David A. Price. Indeed, you are, and I am Derek Bishop. What? You're not Derek Bishop. Never. You're Jason Wood. In the house. Uh, What's up? I think I think tonight's tonight's episode is is going to be fun and entertaining and and um I'd like to get to know the person who's been writing these stories that I've been enjoying these yes. uh, these past few months. You know who you should get to know if you're uh in the market for Inexpensive funny books? Tell us. Discount comic book service. DCBService.com. That's DCBService.com where you can get your books, get them fast, get them delivered right to your door for a mere fraction of what everybody else is paying. From Image, we have Mr. Jeff Lemire and Dustin Wynn going back to the well for Ascender, which is the uh, flip side to the relatively long-running Descender series. Cover price is three ninety nine, but you're not going to pay that. No, siree, Bob. You will take it home for $1.99. Next up, Ahoy! Wave 2 begins. What do you get when you combine all of the best-loved comic genres from the 1970s? You got apes, monsters, kung fu, sword and sorcery, and cosmic adventure. I'll tell you what you get. You get Bronze Age Boogie. Mm-hmm. Number one, written by Stuart Moore and Tyrone Finch, with art by Alberto Ponticelli and Elaine Morissette. And the uh, cover price on this is the unfortunately standard three ninety nine, but you can procure it for a lousy $2.19. That's 45% off. And bringing up the rear, it's Mary Shelley herself, who is now a monster hunter in the uh, Adam Glass, Olivia Briggs series called Mary Shelley Monster Hunter. Ba-da-ba. Art by Hayden Sherman. Its cover price is three ninety nine, but you are smart and can has it for a dollar ninety nine. DCBService.com does not mind late orders or order editions, and you get your books all nice and secure and brought right to your domicile. 
Right there, right to your door. It's easier than ordering food. Yep. Yep. Speaking of witty banter, Vince. Ooh. I was all excited today. I'm like, oh, snap. I'm like, our 10-year anniversary is coming up. We're going to have to do this right. Oh, so I'm gonna wait. We about that <laughs> and then I was like doing the maths. I'm good at the maths. And you I realized are. that we, we had our 10-year anniversary last May. Wow, so we're into year 11. (laughs) We're almost at, yeah, in May it'll be 11 years, not 10. (laughs) That is craziness. It is crazy. It doesn't seem that long. No. No, but it's because we're having fun. We went right past that seven-year itch. I didn't get any itchies. But I do. What are you wooing about? (laughs) But I I would like to know. Let's not rewrite history here. I would like. I think it. I would like to know what y'all are drinking. Um, Well, since you didn't ask either one of us, but Dap always goes last, I will say and tell you what I'm drinking. I'm drinking uh, Chimay Ale, which uh, is a Belgian Trappist monk. Ale, and I'm drinking the Red Label Premier Ale, which is eight percent alcohol by volume. Not bad. It's a big boy it's, drink. It's better than not bad. It, it is one of the best beers ever created in human history. Ever. Uh, wow. Well, I'm glad you sandwiched me in the middle because I'm going to let y'all down. I, I'm doing a thing now where I am not eating or drinking after six p.m. That's going to suck on Thursday nights, bro. Mm, oh, unless I lie, because uh, I'm drinking good old-fashioned good old water. Unless I lie. I could oh, lie, and you'd never okay. know. Dare, dare, dare I go down the rabbit hole and ask why you're suddenly not I just want to drop a couple LBs. But why 6 o'clock? Because I usually get up at 6, eat breakfast, Blah blah blah. Get the get the kids stuff already, and then it's, it's it's a nice twelve hour stretch, and then if I stop eating at six, and the next morning I eat at six, it's a twelve hour stretch where I don't eat. So it's twelve on, twelve off. So you want to look sexy for C two E two? Is what you're saying? I already look sexy. I just want to drop a couple lbs. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, we so does that mean after C two E two you'll be? Oh, I don't know. I don't don't you know don't, it, yes. don't worry about no, it. No, I do know how it does, but it's like I don't want you to lie. I mean, like you I know, may I mean, lie. All of a sudden, it'd be like you know, teetotaling comics. I got know, no that's... problem lying. <laughs> but what you're not going to be lying about is the fact that we are one month away Oof. from descending into the windy city to hang out with our peoples. It's going to be a long month. It isn't. It isn't. Because yeah, I don't know, man. We're old. Like I feel like like. I fart and it's a month. <laughs> That's a long fart. <laughs> no, I know, but that don't you feel that way though? Like you blink and it's like It's true. I open up my DCBS box and then I turn around and there's another one at the door. And I only I get mine monthly. So yeah, I yeah. Just, I understand. There's a running joke with my kids that that previews comes out weekly because as we've talked about a million times, when the previews does arrive, it's a whole thing. That Saturday, get up in the morning, go into the great room, make a cup of coffee, sit there. Hopefully, I have a fire going. Read the previews, but in their mind, I do it every week, and <laughs> I say no. I do it once a month, but that's so time flies, man. You just true. It's all about perception. Yes, it's true. But we are gonna t- we are gonna have a time, big time. But in the in the meantime, we need to know what David's drinking, and I hope it's not water. 
It is not water. Thank the God. It is, uh, it is a Cabernet Sauvignon from California from Bogle Vineyards. Oh, nice Bogle. Respect. Well, as uh, Jason alluded, we have a very special um, guest coming up, and you're going to hear all about it and, and her. And after that stretch, we will come back and do the In Your Travels. It's an extra good, extra long interview. It's amazing. You're going to love it. And as promised, a special guest this week. We have been teasing uh, this guest for a few episodes, and today is the day. Uh, this illustrious guest has emerged as one of the industry's bright new voices in the last few years. Uh, she now calls Marvel her exclusive home for about the last year or so. She is currently writing West Coast Avengers, Captain Marvel, Mr. and Mrs. X, Jessica Jones, and... She also writes Nancy Drew for Dynamite, which I guess we can get into since that's not a Marvel comic. But uh, either way, by now you know who I'm talking about. Please welcome to the show, Miss Kelly Thompson. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank Hi. you. It's great to have you on. Very excited. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm sorry. Uh, I can't remember. I've been scheduling and rescheduling a lot of podcasts these days. And I don't know if you guys were one of the ones that got shuffled around, but it's great to finally be on. Uh, yeah, no, everything worked out perfectly on our end, so I guess yes. we were we were lucky. So. Yeah, you guys were the lucky ones. <laughs> All right, perfect. Uh, well, so, you know, uh, we have lots of ground to cover because I think you're doing some awesome work. Um, but I think um, we'll, let's start with the obligatory Kelly Thompson origin story, if we could. Um, so may, maybe just touch a bit on, um, you know, how you became – uh, addicted to this to this crazy hobby that we all uh, spend so much time uh, in in comics. Sure, sure. Um, my first comics when I was really little were Archie comics, which is particularly relevant because the only thing you missed in the intro was that I am writing the new Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That's the right. Yeah, thank yeah, you. I forgot that. Yes, there we go. It's on my mind because we just debuted some of the uh, issue two covers today that were really great, so fun. Um, so the, I, those were definitely my first comics, but I sometimes don't really consider them my entry to comics, which is pretty unfair because there's this very clear delineation in my mind between those comics that I loved so much. And I now see in retrospect, I loved more than other kids I knew. Like I just assumed all kids loved those Archies as much as I did. But there's this very clear delineation because I didn't understand that there was anything outside of Archie Digest. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't know about floppies. I somehow never saw or made the connection between Archie Digest and, like, seeing a spinner rack in a store somewhere. So, like, there's this very clear mark in my mind between loving those comics and... And now I know, in retrospect, picking up the language of reading comics and the love of comics versus when I discovered superhero comics and the X-Men and comic stores and the direct market and having a hold and a pull and, like, how all of it worked, right? right. How the machine worked, which was when I got super into comics, which was years later. I mean, probably, you know, 10 years later than when I was first reading those Archies and like driving my mom crazy at the supermarket every week to try to get me one. Um, you know, and she used to be like, don't you have these? I'm like, they're all different. It's amazing. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 
so That's probably uh, no different, right? Than than uh, than a lot of people. I mean, I, I remember as a kid seeing the Archies in the grocery store, or what have you, and um, you know. So, uh, but but it, it's kind of fascinating. Then we've come full circle, and and now um, you know you you are as you just noted writing an Archie comic. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because my mom is not, uh, you know, my parents are very supportive. They're fantastic. I mean, they let me go to the Savannah College of Art and Design to study comics. So how much more, like, awesome and supportive can you be than being like, oh, yeah, I'll pay a bunch of money for my kid to learn about comic books. So uh, my parents are great, but they're not into them, right? They don't really, quote, unquote, get it. But my mom definitely has all those same memories of me driving her crazy about Archie comics. And so for her, the Sabrina is pretty exciting. I would say Nancy Drew and Sabrina are the two comics she's been the most excited for me to do. Not even because she wants to read them, but just because they make sense to her in a way. Oh, right, right, yeah. It's a tie to something she sort of understands and knows about, unlike the X-Men, which she just knows as like this really annoying thing that I fell in love with when I was about 15 that changed her life (laughs) against her will. (laughs) Right, right. Now, um, I know this from um, hearing you on another podcast a year or two ago that, um, and it's, it's, it's funny when I, when I hear this because there's this clear delineation um, that separates sort of uh, a certain age group of, of hardcore comic fans. David, Vince, and I are just above that line uh, age-wise, and you're below it, which is to say, if I'm not mistaken, X-Men, the animated series, played a huge role in you becoming a full-fledged comic nerd. And I bring that up because yeah. um, I think there's a lot of you out there Oh yeah, were at a certain age where it was like your seminal thing. And for us, who were just a bit older when that came out it's always surprising because it really had almost no impact on on any of our respective uh love or adoration for the x-men but for for so many of you it's it's that's as a cartoon goes it seems to be one of the best gateway drugs of all time for our industry for sure for sure and we can bring this all back around later when we talk about captain marvel but a hundred percent there is there is really nothing unique about my real superhero origin story of comics because it happened to millions of other kids exactly the same way it happened to me, which is we saw that animated cartoon and our little minds exploded. And we were like, what is this magic? I need to know more about this. In my case, um, you know, my brother, who's a couple years younger than me, I have two brothers, but one of them, Scott, was more into comics than I than uh, than my brother David, who was uh, who's about five or six years younger, and he came home from the mall one day, jumping up and down, barely able to contain himself, and it was because he had a copy of uh, Uncanny X Men two ninety Storm on the cover, going, "It's that girl from the show! It's that girl from the show!" And I was like, what is this? And that, that became my first superhero comic and the beginning of, you know, a lifelong love affair. Um, and I'll tell you right now, uh, that comic is in my garage, not his garage. I stole it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it odd that we always remember our first comics? For sure. Yeah. I remember, I... My, I remember my second, too, which was um, X-Force number three. Which those are such very weird, specific comics to be your first superhero comics. I mean, I don't think a single action thing happens in that Uncanny X-Men um, 290. It's all about, 
like Forge, Storm deciding whether she wants to go be with Forge or not. And like just when she decides to be with him, Forge just telling Storm that he's going to leave and be with Mystique because unlike Storm, Mystique needs him. Like it's total soap opera, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's really no action going on. It's all emotional stuff. And then, um, and then X Force, of course, is like all guns and pouches and belts. So yes. I mean, just really two totally different chances to see um, what what comics that should have been very similar in the sense that they were among all of the comics out there. They were two X Men comics, and yet they couldn't have been like more different and offered me more opportunity to see wow, these comics can do sort of anything, you know? Right, right. Well, uh, while we're on the subject of the X-Universe, um, in preparation for our talk here, I I dove in pretty deep into into Kelly land. <laughs> and um, I have to say that if someone told me a couple weeks ago that you would be reading and enjoying a comic featuring not only Gambit, <laughs> but rogue as well i i would have laughed because <laughs> as far as my 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 beloved x-men go rogue and gambit never you know cracked the top 10 mm-hmm. previous to this but right. i mean it just i i firmly believe that any characters can be gold in the right hands and you've proved it with uh, mr and mrs x i enjoyed that i read i think about what is it eight issues seven issues to date yeah yeah, yeah. I think eight just came out. Yeah, yeah. eight issues. Yeah, and I thought it was wonderful. And it's in the interplay between the two characters, and just the fact that you you threw the Star Jammers in there, and um, and it, TechNet, yeah, and the oh, the TechNet, right? <laughs> it, it's just oh, I it. Love, I it, love TechNet so much. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a a long time X fans. It's a smorgasbord, and and it's it's masquerading as. A Rogan and Gambit book, but it's much, much more than that. Yet, you, you know, the daughter of of Professor X and Lalandra—that is so cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. No, I mean, listen, Rogan Gambit. I mean, when we're talking about the core of who I am as a comic book fan and a and a writer and a reader, it's Rogan Gambit. I mean, you know, we talk about the um, the X Men animated series being my gateway. Well. Literally, the first thing my hungry young eyes saw when we turned on the TV was Rogue in a mini dress flying through a mall, punching a sentinel in the face. And I was like, what? <laughs> yes, I am 100% in for this. Give me more of this. So it was a very quick path to Rogue becoming my favorite character. And, you know, I was a certain age, right, 15 or whatever, where Gambit is... I mean, you might as well just inject that directly <laughs> into your fucking bloodstream. Like, I was so in. And they were, you know, and I hit them, um, you know, it, it's not it's not a one-for-one one of when I came to comics and what was going on with them. Because I was reading all those back issues and stuff, and I, like, sort of backtracked to get to, uh, you know, X-Men number one, like, that big launch and everything. Um, but you know, they were going through that high, will you, won't you drama that for a teen especially was so, you know, incredible. And so, you know, when I got the chance to write that Rogan Gambit miniseries, um, I was like, that's my shot, right? That's my, that's my Shakespeare right there. So I better just go all in. And then I was really lucky that, 
they wanted to spin it into this wedding and this marriage. And, you know, in the Marvel summit room, there's a lot of talk about like, oh, you know, what's going to be the conflict? Like, are you going to break them up? Are they going to get a divorce? I was like, why is anyone saying the word divorce in this room? We're still talking about getting them married. I was like, and over my dead body, like, you know, <laughs> you guys can can kick me out of the Marvel Summit and someone else can come in and ruin their lives. But there's no reason them being married has to be uninteresting. Like, to me, that is ideas have gone to die if you're talking about they can't be interested. Like, Rogue and Gambit are, have crackling fascinating chemistry they have a lot of problems there's no reason that's not interesting and uh i was like i i sort of took that as a challenge i was like i dare you not to laugh and fall in love with these characters as i'm gonna write them i dare you to try and break them up you know come at me bro (laughs) (laughs) that's a very unique perspective and i love it because it's you're not focused on the let's sell a bunch of issues by introducing this this out of the blue concept you want to massage the concept for all it's worth and that that's a very different perspective in comics today it's always like this issue somebody dies you know whereas yeah. you want you want to perpetuate this this union and it's great it it works so well thank you yeah, yeah. we're we're having a really good time yeah i mean and so you um because you mentioned about the, get them getting married. I mean, you, you wrote, obviously, the Rogan Gambit miniseries uh, before Mr. and Mrs. X. And um, it does seem like marrying people off is like the, the death knell for characters in a lot of times with comics. And I, I don't know why that is. But um, but but as Vince noted, the, the thing I will – one of your superpowers, Kelly, I will say is this. You have a way of taking characters that people have uh, – and people, I mean, I mean me uh, – have uh, – have perceived to have like a disdain for, and you've made them like enjoyable to read. And I have to tell you that is a, that is an accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Can I tell you, I think part of the secret is simply because I'm not super great at doing a project I'm not in love with. And, you know, Rogan Gambit is certainly an exception. And I actually had a lot of dream projects this year where, um, you know, those were the projects I would pick if you let me pick. So I was already sort of in love with them before we came to it, you know, or, and, or I was able to take like, you know, Jessica Jones was a dream project, but then, you know, I know I've got a chance to put in what guest stars. And so then I'm like picking and choosing my dream characters that I want to write and that I think will be interesting in that environment. But, you know, a great example is one of the first jobs I got at Marvel was A-Force, And, you know, not that I didn't like that concept or like that book, but the first thing I thought when I looked at that cast was, I wonder if they'll let me get rid of Medusa and Dazzler because I wasn't really (laughs) interested in them. I wasn't interested in them. I was a classic Rogue fan. Rogue and Dazzler used to have beef. Therefore, I don't like Dazzler. Like, I've carried that straight into my life. Right? And then Medusa. And then you ended up having two versions of Dazzler in the comic. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and then I was like, Medusa, I was like, eh, she's a queen. She's like, I don't know that much about her. And I don't, she's very sort of removed, blah, blah, blah. Those turned into two of my favorite characters to write. So there's a, there's a process for me in figuring out the story and figuring out the character and like digging into what's interesting about them where I fall in love. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a sort of ends up being a, a fairly translatable thing. Um, 
I think I had a lot of hesitancy on West Coast Avengers with Quentin Quire and Gwenpool. Um, I wasn't sure those big personalities were going to work in that team. I was worried about sort of the powers. Gwenpool especially doesn't work very well in a team environment. And I was like, well, I really got to look at this and I really got to figure it out. And they have turned out to be not only two of my favorite characters to write, but surprising tons. I, every day readers come at me and they're like, how dare you make me like Gwenpool or how dare you make me like Gwenpool and Quentin Quire together. And I'm like, sorry, it happened to me too. Like, I didn't know. <laughs> well, they just sort of clicked, you know, they sort of locked into place together and it just worked, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I will agree with you because I have to say full disclosure, don't know if you had the time or inclination to listen to any of our episodes before, but um, when West coast Avengers was solicited, um, a lot of our listeners know that, that, uh, that we are big fans of the original West coast Avengers or I, you know, um, As probably, am I. Prob- yeah, probably me, me more than my, my, uh, my cohorts here. Um, they're probably snickering, but but uh, but when when we saw the cover art, you know, I, I saw the the Gwenpool, and to your point, my initial reaction, and I I I said mea culpa's after the first issue came out, and I raved about it, was oh, <laughs> I mean, really, uh, we need it, we need more Gwenpool, um, be, because I just you know it was a character having been a long time Deadpool mark, I just I I never really uh just didn't glom onto, but uh, but but yeah, you 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 managed to make her. Uh, interesting, and and that is no small feat. Now you now you've alluded to you were a little hesitant, so that that kind of gets to a question I had had for you, which is um, when you're putting a team book together like A Force or like uh, West Coast Avengers, is it somewhat of a combination of you giving them a dream list of characters you want, and then editorial saying yes, 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 no, but we also want you to have this character? I mean, is it is it kind of a bit of okay. column A, column B? I Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, a lot of it depends on who you are in the industry and how long you've been in it and, you know, how your sales are. I mean, you know, someone like Jonathan Hickman, I feel like he's earned that, right? He can walk in a room and say, hey, I'm these are the characters I want and you have to give them to me and I'm going to do a thing. Like, you know, you just, you've proved that over your time, you know. Some newer kids like, you know, me and Matt Rosenberg and Ed Brisson, who've only been playing in the Marvel Universe for a little while, I think there's more compromise. That said, I think every, I think most writers uh, who are working in that kind of scenario, where you're 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 borrowing someone else's characters to tell these big stories, would all agree that compromise is always part of it. Um, any any good uh, product it, it involves some push and some pull, and I would be the first one to say, for me that push and pull has often resulted in really good things. Like in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't ask them to let me get rid of Dazzler and Medusa on A-Force because I think they turned out to be great voices in that book that I had a really good time with. Similarly, I was not convinced that Quentin and Gwenpool were going to be great and it turned out to be really magical um, West Coast Avengers was probably one of the toughest books to put together for me at Marvel. Um, you know, we wanted to, we were losing Kate and we were all pretty devastated about it. The Hawkeye book. Um, Marvel really loved that book. Um, they were very supportive of it. You know, I, I know that, I, I know that haters and trolls want to say 16 issues isn't a long run, but I'm sorry to say, but you know, unless you've got the name Batman, it, it, 
16 issues is kind of a lot these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's we're, we're headed towards shorter runs. Like that's just the way it is. Like, yes, there are flagship titles that can do more and go longer. You know, you put Jason Aaron on the flagship Avengers book. That's going to run a long time as, as it should. There's no criticism here. I just think there's not as much as a lot of writers, myself included, would love to be able to settle in for longer runs. That really is, a, a sort of days gone by kind of thing. We're headed more to shorter sort of seasons of things. And so Hawkeye getting 16 issues was really great. Actually, that was a pretty long run for a book like that with a, with a solo female lead sort of testing the ground on a new area and new characters. And um, so we're all kind of really devastated <laughs> that Hawkeye was, was, was not going to be able to keep going we wanted to spin it out into West Coast Avengers and we knew it would be Kate sort of leading that charge because we wanted to spin out of Kate's book. But initially I wanted to do a much more classic West Coast Avengers. Like I sort of wanted to do classic West Coast Avengers and throw in Kate and maybe America, like as the younger kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot of, so I wanted like, sort of Clint and Tigra, I wanted She-Hulk, like things like that um, I saw as a much more classic thing. And that's just not really what they wanted to do. I mean, they had a much more young Avengers-ish vibe in mind. And I was nervous about it. I thought we were going to get a lot of pushback from classic West Coast Avengers people, which we did. And I thought it was going to just look like a Young Avengers book. And I was going to be like, well, why aren't we just calling it Young Avengers then? Um, but success or failure be damned, I think that they were right. And what came out of it was a much more interesting book than if I had just plowed through with a more classic West Coast Avengers. Or if, or if I had stopped pushing back and we had gotten a more a more usual YA Avengers. I mean, I think when that book really started to come together, I mean, Sana Aminat had said something really early on about it having a parks and rec vibe. And so when we were like, wait, it's sort of parks and rec meets the Avengers, you know, they don't have the funding, you know, we're going to have this mockumentary film crew there. So we'll get these confessionals. And, you know, Kate's sort of screwing up this team that she's trying to do this good thing with. And we were just sort of fighting back and forth on what the character should be and what it what should happen. And it was after the summit in May, um, which was a point where none of us were comfortable that it wasn't done yet. Uh, like the, the, I really needed to have written the first issue already and we were all nervous about it. And I'm very lucky that Tom and Alana didn't just completely freak out and replace me. But we finally sat down together in a room and it finally clicked for me about what it was and why they were pushing back and the kind of thing they were looking for and how I could take what I thought they were looking for and turn it into a thing that I was super interested in. And so it, uh, it all came together and it's honestly one of my favorite things I've ever done. And I think it will be for a long time. You, you seem to be very complimentary of your, uh, editors, um, <laughs> which is, uh, it's refreshing, frankly. Um, 
No, so so <laughs> it's like, it's like bad stories. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it it seems like you're you know you you certainly give them credit where credit is due, and it seems like you definitely speak to it as though it's a a a, a positive a net positive collaborative process. Um, I mean, am I, am I putting words in your mouth, or does, you know, have no. you found that to be true? And did you are no. you pleasantly surprised by that? You know, since you've been in the business for a couple of years now. No, it's been great. I think that I would say about editors the same same thing I would say about artists is that um, I've a I've been very lucky um, to have really great collaborators and people I really enjoy working with. But one of the magical things about comics, and I think it's probably true of any industry where you have collaborators coming together on a somewhat equal footing is that everyone can be really good at their job and still not be the best fit. Um, Someone's artwork can be brilliant and just not quite be the right fit for my writing and vice versa. Right. And and it's true of editors too. Um, You know, sometimes everyone's trying to make a really good book, but you're just not trying to make the same book. Um, and that's happened to me and it makes things more difficult. Um, but I've, for the most part, I've been really, really lucky with my collaborators, uh, across the board. And I try and focus on the positive because comics is a dream job, but it's surprisingly difficult to do. Um, there are a lot of things you have to jump through that you sort of don't expect that makes things harder than you'd like them to be. Mm-hmm. So I try to revel in what's so great about it and how much people love the work they're trying to do and sort of the, the genuine desire to create a great comic book. That's what pretty much everyone comes to the table with every day. And so you're all working hard towards that goal. And sometimes it's easier than others, you know? Sure. Right. Well, having so, Oh, oh, go ahead, ahead, David. No, you. No, no, no. Well, I just want to say, while we're on the subject of artists, um, we like to call it the Scotty Young effect, where some writers seem to be blessed with super top-notch uh, visual stylists t- uh, to go on their books. And having looked at, you know, the bulk of your work, I got to say, you got there's a little bit of the Scotty Young effect in in your <laughs> stuff because uh, Jorge Molina on X Force and um, A Force. I, sorry, A Force, um, <laughs> Oscar Baz on Mister and Mrs X. Like you got super top notch artists on your your projects. Leo, Leo Romero on Hawkeye. Woo. Yeah, Stefano Caselli. Like Damn. yo, um, do you um, are you the master manipulator that Scotty is, or it just it just happened this way? Like I, you, I think I am. Not every not every artist you polled would agree with this. I, I I know that for a fact. I know there are a few artists out there who do not think I'm the best. Uh. But, I, but I do think there I'm getting a pretty decent reputation among some really great artists because I had the opportunity to meet with a few of them uh, this last fall, and I feel like I'm a really generous collaborator. I also know what I want, and that can be a good and a bad thing. If I'm working with the right person, I think that that tends to translate really well to us all bringing our a game and making the best book possible. But like, let me, let me put it in a a story terms to help. Like, instead of just speaking in generalities, the first time I got to work with Michael Walsh was, um, Hawkeye number five. He was doing Hawkeye five and six. 
Um, so the book was really young still. It was the first time I'd ever gotten to work with Michael. Um, I didn't really know him. I mean, I knew him around, but I, I, you know, I, and I knew his work a little bit, but I didn't know him that well. And so he sent in these layouts, which were terrific. And I, I, I emailed him back. I went over the layouts with a fine tooth comb, which not every art, not every writer does. And a lot of artists might not appreciate. And I said to him when I sent the notes, which were mostly positive, but there were like a few things that like our signals had gotten crossed or whatever. And I was like, listen, you'll learn very quickly with me. Um, I don't ever want you to have to redraw shit. So I look very closely at layouts because I figure we can, fix almost any problems we have in the layout stage. Um, but I know that that seems really extra to, to some people, including some editors. Some editors are like, stay in your freaking lane, Kelly. Like, that's my job. And I'm like, really? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and Michael's response told me right away that we were great collaborators. He was like, that's fantastic. He's like, because the last thing I want to do is redraw. If you can tell me a problem we've got or, you know, a, a thing you think I'm missing in that stage, I welcome that. Like, yes, let's deal with it here. And so I knew right away we, we were, we were great. We were solid and it turned into a great collaborative experience. And I would always work with Michael and I hope he feels the same way. Um, but you know, not every artist thinks that's the best. Like, so this is again, the thing I'm talking about with, I've been really lucky to work with really talented artists, but just because someone's really talented doesn't mean they're the best fit for me and vice versa. You know? Right. Um, I do think that there's this secret unknown thing that a lot of fans don't seem to realize, which is sometimes who you're partnered with. I mean, editors have this incredibly difficult job of trying to put together these teams. It's the hardest thing they have to do, especially with artist schedules. I mean, it's like a it's like a crazy math equation to fill out, figure out how fast they work, how many issues you need, where the breaks are, how busy they are, you know, how much. And but then the secret component that a lot of fans don't think about is their page rate. Because some art, you know, you can't just put any artist on any book. Mm -hmm. Some books are going to sell 50,000 every month. And so they can warrant this number. And some are going to sell 30,000. And they don't warrant that number. And so, like, that's another part of that equation that a lot of people are never privy to. And which, you know, I'm not, I'm slowly building my reputation. But I'm not some big, oh, yeah, Kelly's book is going to sell 70k every month and we know it'll do that for a year so we can put whoever we want on this like that isn't always right. a thing. um but i would also say that you don't always need that quote-unquote a-list artist i mean leo romero mm. is one of my favorite artists in all of comics and he was from day one of working on hawkeye when he was quote-unquote a nobody right i mean he had done almost nothing and I was like, this guy is my perfect partner. Like, I can't get over how good this looks and how perfect it is for Kate. And because he's younger and newer, like, he's a lot cheaper than X, Y, and Z, you know? Right. So it's, it's a really, I mean, making comics, you'd think it's easy, but it's incredibly complex. Like, so <laughs> right. many spinning plates. Well, because of the high turnaround time and the nature of the business, yes. to, um, say 
you got a project and Marvel said to you, okay, we'll give you artist A for three issues and we'll round out this thing with artist B. Do you prefer a singular vision for the entirety of the run or is part, parting it out between two creative stylists a detriment to what you're trying to do? I will fight really hard to have one artist for a whole arc. Nice. Even better if I can have one artist for a whole trade, but that's really hard to do these days. Um, I'm very proud that we're getting to do it for Mr. and Mrs. X and um, uh, Jessica Jones. I would say Jessica Jones is a really good exception. Uh, We did it okay with the first volume. We're doing it really well, I think, for the second volume, which is we knew Mattia could only do five issues, but we wanted these six issue. We wanted, because they were doing these double-sized issues, it was important that we do six issues. So for the first, excuse me, for the first one, we did five issues with Mattia and then six, and six, we just did a totally different tone, like, it was yeah yes he did yeah, yeah it was yeah. Mar- yeah it's Marceo Takara and who's who's fantastic but we just did like it was like Jessica at home right it was like a right, sort for of her, for party their birthday, vibe. birthday party had, yeah yeah it had a much more classic superhero element to it not as much the darker noir stuff of Jessica and I thought it worked really well um, but for this arc we're doing it even better where the guest artist is written into the narrative in a very smart way for almost all of issue five. It's 18 pages of issue five and Maria has done the rest. Nice. And I think, I don't know, we'll find out in a month, but I think it's really landing well. I'm very excited about it. So I sort of move heaven and earth to try and make that happen. And it doesn't always work, but uh, mostly it's worked out so far. I definitely want to spend a, a decent chunk of time uh, paying homage and love to the entire Hawkeye uh, situation, but the OCD in me, I just want to make sure that we cover the rest of your uh, your 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 journey into Marvel. Because um, <laughs> no, sure. one of the cool yeah. things I think when we we talk to creators is that um, you know like we we uh, and we have some for you. We we ask our our, our patrons for Patreon for questions with guests. And, and I would tell you that we get at least one version of the same question, uh, no matter who the guest is. And that's always the obligatory, like how, how do you, what's the secret to getting into comics? And I always kind of smirk at it because after doing the show for almost 11 years, we, we know the answer to that is there, there's no blueprint, right? I mean, every, every one of you has your own origin story. Um, and, and, and there's no, like, there's no blueprint to just getting into comics. There's lots of different ways, Talent, hard work, luck, all of it, you know, and, and, and opportunity. But but for you, um, I think one of the interesting things is you mentioned you went to SCAD to study to do this. Uh, and then you you ended up, I guess, before really being a comics writer, you, you ended up doing a, a column um, talking about all kinds of issues related to comics. Uh, she has no head, which mm-hmm. I, I think you – I knew it from CBR, but you, you did it on another site or yourself before it was on CBR, right? No, no, it was always on CBR. Okay, I mean, cool. Okay. It was on Comics Should Be Good, which was the blog. Got it, yeah. yeah. has sort of changed since CBR has changed. But yeah, right. no, it was always it. Um, I was writing on my own blog, just sort okay. of ranting and raving about some things. And I think I was <laughs> – Brian Cronin did a piece that was like the top five rogue covers or something. <laughs> and I linked to it and was like, Brian is wrong. And I was like <laughs> – 
<laughs> I was like, uh, you know, these three are good choices or whatever. But like one of the covers he had was, I can't remember if it's Uncanny 181 maybe, which is just that, that very cool Wolverine and Rogue running toward the camera. It's from that, it's when they're in Japan. It's It's a great issue for Rogue, but it's not a good cover for Rogue. I mean, she's not particularly well-drawn. It's a Wolverine cover. And so I was giving Brian shit about that. And, you know, he sort of laughed about it. And we had a nice chat about it. And then he was like, I think you should come over and write a column. And he's like, you can do whatever you want. And I was like, okay. I'm going to write about women in comics. And I'm going to call it She Has No Head over this stupid cry for justice photo. And uh, <laughs> and there we go. And the rest right. is history. And, and, and really, so... You know, I, Scad Scad was certainly helpful in teaching me about comics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to undercut that, but writing "She Has No Head" helped me break into the industry way more than "Oh Hey, I Went to Scad." Like nobody cares that I went to Scad, but I started interviewing people and talking about people, and people started listening to what I had to say about comics, and that was what started connecting me with people who thought I might be able to actually write them. And, and I was, I was writing them on the side as well, but so that I would have something to show them. But um, the, the column was, was something that helped me break in much more than, Oh, Hey, I spent a bunch of money going to school to learn how to make them. Right. Right. And one of the things about she has no head. And I, I did, uh, I was a reader of the column. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's interesting in that you, you were certainly, it was a very open and, and personal Look at things. You were certainly critical uh, when you yeah, thought it was warranted. Style for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, so um, do, when you look back on it, I mean, clearly, as you just alluded, it it had a big role in helping you meet people and make relationships that ultimately led to you getting to where you want to be. But, but do you, you know, do you think it had, you know, was it, did it have positives and negatives, you know, relative to the early part of your career in terms of, like, did the criticisms maybe have uh, doors closed it, or, or did you never well, really see any of that? No, I. I've never written a comic for DC. And is that because I was mean to them sometimes? Okay. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. that it's an open-ended question for me. Like, people have tried to get me before I signed with Marvel. There are multiple people, some of them more powerful than others, who've tried to suggest I write some DC comics. And it's never worked out, which seems a little suspicious because I'm very like flexible and uh, accommodating and I would love to write some DC comics someday. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe it's just a coincidence. I don't know. I, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that because I said lots of negative things about Marvel too. I was pretty even handed in my criticism of both companies when they would do dumb things. Um, I think that, you know, hindsight being 2020 right um i i wouldn't probably do it the way i did it knowing what i know now mostly that once you see how the sausage is made you suddenly understand wow the sausage is incredibly more complex than i had any idea and it's really easy to sort of throw rocks at the sausage factory from outside and it's a whole other thing to like try and come in and make the sausage into something beautiful um, so I really strangled that metaphor. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, 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 but when I think of that, honestly, it's less my 
op-ed column, which was very much like a, hey, let's talk about these issues as they relate to comics. And I think of it more of when I was doing reviews. And oh, sure. again, I don't want to... I don't want to say I I wish I hadn't done reviews because I wrote like well over 500 reviews for CBR and that was a better education in comics than maybe any other thing I've done in my life. Nothing will teach you about comics so much as reading so many good and bad comics and then being forced to explain why they're good and bad. Um, so I, I can't wish that away. But when I look back on them, I see myself being way too harsh on certain things that, you know, like a, a great a great concrete example is I really like James Asmus's and Clay Mann's uh, Gambit run. I think it's very good. But when I look back on those reviews, they feel pretty critical. And like, you know, so I'll say something about the art feeling rushed, I think. And, and, and you, you look at the review and you're like, you can see me saying Clayman is amazing. Why doesn't this art look better? And now I go, yeah, he probably got that script late or a thing happened or, you know, like I know now, like how, how that goes wrong. And like, no, maybe he's not as happy as he'd like to be about this, about how this book turned out. But man, does it suck that I'm being so hard on it. Like, I would just soften everything a little bit, you know? That makes a ton of sense. I mean, again, we, we've been at this for a long time. And I think that in the early years, we talked a lot um, about the business side of things. You know, like we'd see news or look at the diamond sales numbers and we would pontificate like we knew something and um as we got to know and become good friends with some creators they would always say over beers or whatever to kind of like you guys got to stop talking business because you just have no idea <laughs> you know like you off. just don't you, yeah. you just don't you don't know like you just don't know yeah right? i mean and and so we you know we took that to heart and, and we really so we only talk business when we have guests on that that knows the business so i i guess you're kind of answering a question that we had in the queue here which was uh, from one of our listeners, which is, you know, now that you've transitioned from being a lifelong comic fan to writing a column for a long time about the business to now being in intimately involved as, uh, you know, a Marvel writer, like what what did you have wrong when you were a critic uh, and what did you well, have right? I mean, you've kind of touched on it, but, but yeah, I mean, well, a great example, though, which I think spins out of what you guys are talking about. I mean, I don't know specifically what you would talk about, but I know something I talked about and was very critical of. Um, and I'm not even talking about, I used to do these really funny and they were funny because people begged me to bring them back sometimes. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'd like to be able to work in the industry someday again. Uh, is I used to do these drunk cover solicits where I would get drunk and look at the covers <laughs> and the solicits and write about them. And, you know, they were sort of mean and funny and whatever. Um, but I would definitely... I mean, I took all those down because I was like, it's too mean. Like, I'm drunk. Like, I shouldn't be doing that, right? That was like, people loved it, but it was still a bad idea. And, but more importantly than that, because that was a joke, at least. That was like, you know, how can you be mad at this news? It's the Daily Show. It's a comedy show, not a news show, right? But I, I was very critical in a non-drunk capacity from time to time of especially Marvel and DC's solicits and like their covers and why are they doing these things? And now I know that like, that's a constant frustrating machine and you don't know who's writing it. 
Like, it's not always the writer writing that solicit copy. Sometimes it's an editor. Sometimes it's someone else. Like, it, 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 it's, it's just a machine that chews you up and spits you out. And you have to do it so far in advance. And it doesn't get the kind of attention that an actual product gets. And, you know, is that a flaw of, of the big two of, of maybe they need to pay more attention to that? I mean, maybe, but you know, everyone who works in comics is way overworked. There's not a ton of time to be like, Oh yeah, we should really pay a lot more attention to this solicit stuff that let's be real. Only super diehards, a fraction of the industry looks at, you know, with a discerning eye. It's like, how do you justify devoting a lot of time and energy of your people who are supposed to be writing the books and drawing the books and, you know, doing all and editing the books to solicits like so that's something if i could go back in time i would just never criticize solicits again because it's it's a, like a thankless frustrating thing and man as a writer do i hate writing them <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> worst it's the worst that's great so um and again i i, I know we're all champing it a bit to to dig into uh to the marvel titles but but it, I would be remiss to not at least touch on, I guess, what to this point is your longest running series and, and your your first, uh, which is Jim. Now, again, as I said earlier, I think one of your superpowers is getting me to uh, enjoy reading characters I didn't think I liked. Now, Jim is a different beast in that, um, you know, again, bluntly as a, you know, as a, a, a 40 plus year old uh, man, I, I didn't I mean, I knew Jim was a thing like back in the day when I was a kid. I knew it was a cartoon and a toy. Yeah. But I wasn't ever anything I knew much about beyond that. And so when you and Sophie Campbell started doing Jim, I mean, I saw it in previews. And really, I mean, credit to, um, you know, our friends and listeners that said, hey, this book is special. And to your credit and to Sophie's credit, um, you know, we, we ended up reading it. I read the first, you know, three three trades. I have some more here to read. But, but uh, as it was coming out, I really enjoyed it. And again, that's that that's you know pretty cool because i i don't think i'm the target audience for jim i, I don't, oh, that's I don't think awesome. I, that's awesome. so but but as i understand it you um you basically were i think you already knew sophie right and then you guys pitched did you pitch jim or like was it kind of out there they were looking to reboot jim and then you kind of said can i you know did you did you kind of throw your hat in the ring or how did you end up getting jim so so the chronology is i'd written this graphic novel called heart in a box and Meredith McLaren is my co-creator on that. She was working on that. We'd been picked up by Dark Horse, but it was taking forever. It was taking forever because Meredith had to do everything down to the lettering. And because, as you guys know, there's not a lot of money in indie comics, especially when you're a nobody, which I was then. And Meredith was, you know, one step up from being a nobody. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of money in that, in our advance and things like that. And so, you know, she had to do all this other work in order to live while she was doing, hey, draw this, you know, 160-page graphic novel in your spare time. So it was taking forever. And so I was still basically a nobody. The only comic credit I had out there was I did a four-page short with Womanthology, which was drawn by Stephanie Hahn, so it looked freaking incredible mm -hmm. um but it was just you know a four-page charity short and so but i was really trying hard to make this transition i'd written my novel the girl who would be king it was out there in the wild it was doing really good things for me as a writer 
it was sort of getting some notice, but I was really trying to make this comics thing happen and it was taking forever. And I reached out to a, a few women in the industry who were all very wonderful and supportive, but Kelly Sudakonic was really the one who, who super came through for me. And she like made a couple email introductions and one of those introductions was to Sarah Gatos, who was at IDW at the time. And so Sarah and I started talking about, you know, some shorts I, sh I could do, maybe a Powerpuff Girls short, blah, blah, blah. So we're sort of talking. I sort of pitched her on a couple creator-owned type things I could maybe do. You know, we were just sort of talking. And then right before they made the gem announcement, like a couple weeks before they made the announcement, she was like, do you have any interest in Jem? And I was like, yes, I was all over it. She was like, all right, well, you can't tell anyone, but I'll put you on the list so that you can pitch, blah, blah, blah. And so Sophie and I have become friends, but you know, Sophie doesn't need a writer. She's incredible. <laughs> and, and in a lot of ways, she doesn't want a writer because Sophie has very specific stuff she wants to do. And she's a creator at a level you know, she gets better every day, but mm -hmm. at that point she was very famous and I was still a nobody. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were huge. Well, I say we, we are huge, huge fans of her run on glory for sure. Yeah. She's incredible. She's incredible. And she has a very specific thing she wants to do. And that doesn't always line up. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in Sophie's head, so I don't know if she just took pity on me and was like, well, I could pitch Jim on my own, but I'll I'll let this girl come along and ride my coattails. I, I don't know for sure. But from my perspective, I had been trying to get her to do something with me and nothing had been sort of working because she was so busy. But Jem was something she was really interested in. Uh, you know, she'd done those fan designs that people freaked out over like the year or two before that. So I was like, what if we do this? And she was super into it. So we started talking about it right away. They made the announcement, and not long after that, John Barber let us pitch. And, I mean, we put it all on the mat, man. I mean, I, I, I tend to put it all on the mat all the time and do too much work, but I felt, I felt really good about that pitch. Like, when I turned it in, I knew we couldn't do any better than what we had done. And, and, uh, I, and I think I did that because I knew that, I was nobody and why were they going to let me do it? You know, it was like going to be a really big launch for them. And, you know, I, and I learned in retrospect, they talked to a lot of really big writers who didn't have time to do it and things. So they super took a chance on me. And there was a point when I was talking to John where I said, listen, Sophie's got to do this book. Like, I think you and I know that. And I hope you love our pitch and you're going to take a chance on me and let us do it together. But if not, like you got to let Sophie do it and I'll be okay with me being dropped if you know that's all right if that happens oh, really oh that's interesting huh. yeah i just she had to draw it like and and when you see it you're like yes she had to draw this sure. you know um but he really liked the pitch and there was one thing i had working in my favor which was in even though nobody knew me yet i was able to send them like i don't know like somewhere between 60 and 90 pages that were done but not published yet of heart in a box right right so that already being in the pipeline was a great way for us to send them this book and be like, and they could look at it and be like, oh, yeah, this girl knows what she's doing. She's not going to screw up. Like, mm -hmm. we're, it'll, be, it'll be okay. And so, yeah, it, uh, and then it all just happened, and it was huge. And, I mean, it's crazy when you think about, I mean, that 
people don't realize that getting on the cover of previews is like a whole big thing. Like you can only do it as a company like a few times a year. Right. Yeah. It's a whole dramatic thing. The fact that I got on previews for that, my first thing ever, and I've never been on it since is sort of crazy. Right? Oh, we're going to make that happen again. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to. I would love <laughs> to come full circle. But it just, you know, gives you the the feeling of the scope of mm-hmm. this first thing got to be that. And I was very lucky. And I was very lucky that Sophie did it with me and that John was willing to take a chance and that Kelly Sue said, hey, of course, I'll help you up and introduced me to Sarah, which brought me to the whole thing. You know, it was like it was years of of tiny little chess moves, you know, and then here it is. Is it fair to say that uh, Jim, I mean, like I as I see it and again, I could be totally talking about ass here, but like it's a it's a hell of a baptism by fire, right? Because it's. It's it's a, a title with a lot of um, like historical cachet, but hadn't really been in the spotlight in a long time. So you had a licensed book. So I imagine you not only had John Barber as your editor, but you had to deal with. Uh, I forgive me, I don't know which Hasbro. Which toy, Hasbro. Okay. So so you, you had to deal with Hasbro. You had to deal with 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 IDW. You had to deal with John Barber, and then it's a reboot. It's your first, at least public work published work. Anyone's going to see, um, and you have to kind of reinvent this classic toy and cartoon for a new generation of readers and young young women and stuff so like it seems like a uh like a baptism by fire to me um is that how it felt in retrospect? i mean yeah i mean it was really tough i mean we put a lot of work i put a lot of work in as did sophie thinking about what it should be about what gem looks like for a modern audience how to maintain the spirit of the thing but still let it stand on its own two feet. Um, we had a lot of great conversations with John about that. I mean, you know, one of the first things I came in with was, and I think Sophie agreed was the, the Jerrica gem Rio relationship has got to change. Like we can't, that's, it's unrealistic. Like it's unrealistic even in the eighties for a kid's cartoon. Like it didn't work then in my opinion. So we can't make it work now. We need to find a new angle on it. And so, that angle became, sorry, my cuckoo clock's going off in the background. Um, that angle became uh, Rio prefers um, Clark Kent to Superman. You know, like Jerrica is the Superman um, and Clark Kent. And instead of being in love with Superman, he thinks Superman is sort of a diva who, you know, it hasn't really earned it, but he, he thinks Clark Kent is fantastic. Right. And so that became the subversion of that angle that I think really worked. Um, the biggest thing to us was bringing in, uh, doubling down on the racial diversity that Jem already had, um, and bringing in things like body diversity and, um, and, and, uh, more, uh, sexual orientation diversity, things like, you know, just doubling down on all the diversity, which what, to me was completely in the spirit of Jem. I mean, you know, if they'd been able to do whatever they wanted in the eighties, I feel like all those things. Sure. Were uh, no, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to put up right up front, you know, a, a, a gay relationship. And then, you know, the obvious angle there is a sort of Romeo and Juliet situation in dueling bands. So it became Stormer and Kimber, which, of course, there's also this great Easter egg of 
were Stormer and Kimber really supposed to be together in the series anyway? Like, that's a lot of fun fan theory. If you look at, I mean, they've got, <laughs> they have a, do you guys remember the really hilarious, I have no idea what issue it is, but when uh, Wolverine and Nightcrawler have a picture of each other, like, like the, like, <laughs> Like, one of them gives the other one. I know Chip Zdarsky made hilarious fun of this in his in his uh, holiday short uh, this year. But I but because of that, now I can't remember which way it goes. Anyway, one of them gives the other one a photo, a framed photo of, like, Wolverine gives Nightcrawler a photo of himself or vice versa, which is, like, a really weird, funny thing. And Jem has that same thing where... Stormer has like a framed photo of Kimber that she mm-hmm. like lovingly caresses. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's always this fun stuff like that. But um, yeah, so it was, I mean, it was a big risk. I knew that if I could do it and do it well, that I would really solidify my reputation as someone who could, you know, come in and take a weird cult property that didn't have, really a big existing fan base and that could modernize it and make it smart and accessible for everyone. And, and I, it would really help my career. And if I didn't do that, maybe I would be done in comics. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, I think obviously in retrospect, it was a smashing success. No, I mean, yeah, it um, <laughs> yeah. So, so it seems like an unwritten rule, uh, both at Marvel and DC these days that, uh, um, when a writer that maybe doesn't have a huge resume that, that editors like want to give you a shot, they, they take one of two routes. They give you like a, like a spot in a one shot, you know, type of deal. Right. Or I think in your case or our, our buddy Tom King's case, they give you a book to co-write and, yes. and it's like this unwritten, all right, kid, let's see what you got, you know, and, and you've kind of got, so it's, I mean, you, you did that. Um, well, at least I don't know if, I don't know if you would classify that's what happened with a force. Cause you kind of took over writing duties full time, you know, very quickly, but with captain Marvel and Carol core, you co-wrote that. Um, so I guess is, is that fair to say like, that's kind of what was going on. And then with that, like, what is the, we're always fascinated. Like when we see co-writers, like what's the process of co-writing a book? I mean, like, what does that actually, what does that process look like? Well, I'll tell you right now, I actually think that Marvel's, Uh, process on that with the co-writing is really good Um, and I think it's way better than the hey we'll give them this one shot I mean you know they're going to do what they want to do but from my perspective um, the co-writing thing is way better because it sort of protects everyone and raises everyone up and it's more of a uh, it's more of a teaching tool um, than the other thing feels more like a sort of sink or swim situation. Um, that said, I, I suppose not every co-writing experience, I mean, they're all different and um, some are probably bad. Um, I didn't have, I haven't had any bad ones. I've been very lucky, but I would, I, the Kelly Sue DeConnick, working with Kelly Sue DeConnick on Captain Marvel and the Carol Corps was perfect for me. It was, a really great opportunity to not only work with Kelly Sue DeConnick, which was sort of a dream come true, um, but to, to learn. I mean, I was just, I was just learning everything from the basics about like how the book gets put together at a place like Marvel to, you know, how Kelly Sue in particular 
you know, was interested in these things and how she turned a story and like the sort of magical dust she would sprinkle on it. And, you know, uh, it was really great. Um, but like when you script it, I mean, like, so when you co-write that's, I guess from a process perspective, do you, do you email each other back and forth script ideas or is, is, is the, the senior in this case, like Kelly Sue, is she the one that ultimately like wrote the script and took your input? I'm just curious how that works. I think I again I, I think it's different in every scenario. Mm-hmm. My experience writing Uncanny X Men with Matt and Ed were like three sort of quote unquote equal writers coming to the table and trying to share equally. Um me writing with Kelly Sudakonic on her book was not equal, right? I was there to learn, I was there to help, I was there to do what she needed me to do. Um in that case, um you know, I don't know that she was trying to help me do the hard stuff or if that was just what her schedule was demanding. Like, I don't know how much thought she put into that. But I mean, in in the specific case of that Carol Core book, Kelly Sue had the idea of what she wanted the story to be in the sense of like, here's a paragraph, you know, here's here's what this here's what these four issues are about. Um, and here's the rough world. It's this sort of futuristic 1940s kind of vibe uh it's sort of an island quote-unquote of women um in this area of battle world um you know it's a military base you know blah 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 and then it's roughly about this and then she handed that to me and then I broke that out into four issues what I thought these things should be and and she had an end point which is actually a funny story because it was at the end point it was that Carol dies and I was like, oh, my God. I was like, this book I'm writing, I have to kill Carol Danvers? Are you kidding me? Like, I was so I was so worried about it. And so then I turned in this beat sheet that was a very detailed breakdown for all four issues. And that included <laughs> Carol dying at the end. And at some point in the process, and Kelly says, well, like, we can't kill Carol. And I was like, I mean, that's great news, Kelly. Um, you told me she had to die. I would love to not kill her. And she's like, what? I didn't do that. And then, and then Sonic's like, yeah, yeah, you did. And she's like, wow, I must've been in like a really dark bitch planet mood when I did Uh, that, you know? So yeah, that didn't end up happening. Uh, thank God. Um, so, so it was the beat sheet and then she and Sana would review it and we'd finesse it together. And then I went off and wrote the scripts. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she would come in and do her pass on them. Um, and there might have been a thing where Sana had me do a second pass before it got handed to Kelly Sue. I can't remember. Um, but, you know, she would come in and sort of sprinkle her magic Kelly Sue charm and, and voice into it that, that, you know, really made it so wonderful. But I was really proud about some of the stuff I was doing there. Like I, I was trying very hard and I was, I was really trying to impress people. Sana had my Kate Bishop uh, Hawkeye investigations pitch in her hand. And so I knew very much that I was auditioning. Um, you know, I needed to prove myself as a writer, but also as like a reliable, good collaborator. Um, so there was something I was going to say. By the way, I should just interject that uh, I think most of our listeners know, but when you you've referenced Sana a bit, uh, you're obviously talking about Sana Amanat, who's yes. um, you know right. well known and, and influential uh, editor at Marvel, and you know known for I think really spearheading the uh, you know the the ongoing you know push for diversity in uh, yeah in line, so, and yeah 
she co-created Ms. Marvel yep. and she yep. spearheaded that. She she edited Hawkeye. She yep. brought it through. Um, she she got handed off, or maybe she was involved from Captain Marvel from the beginning. I mean, I know she took over from Stephen Wacker on some of that, um, yeah. but she might have been involved from the beginning. I can't really remember the chronology. And but, by the uh, way, before uh, I don't want to give I don't want to give your OGN heart in a box short shrift because um, you know as you mentioned you you, were, you had already kind of like written all or most of that by the time uh gem hit the shelves but it just hadn't hit hit the public but i have to give uh all credit in the world to scotty young for turning us on to heart in a box he was on the show uh he's been on the show a lot but he was on the show a few years back and we were just riffing about um you know ogns and he to his credit you can when you see him at the next retreat or something he said you guys got to read heart in a box by kelly thompson and i didn't really know you i mean i knew you were as I knew your column at the time. I didn't know your comics work at the time. Um, it was kind of right around the same time that that uh, all this was happening. So, so uh, it's I great. No it's it's, it's great. I, I, I is are, are more people seeing and or you know buying Heart in a Box now that your profile has been raised? You know, um, I definitely. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it sells out there in the world. I know I sell quite a few from my my web store that I run. That, mm-hmm. um, my signed comics, but it's sort of a problem because I mean, you can't really get it anymore. Um, Amazon, I mean, you get it on like Comixology, right? Digitally. I mean, yeah, you can, you, can get yeah. It, you can get it digitally, but I mean, the print run is basically run itself out. I mean, Amazon seems to still have copies, so you can get it from Amazon. I mean, that's where I'm getting mine at this point because you can't get them from like Midtown Comics, which is where I get all my books, you know, at a discount for my store. They don't have it anymore. So, um, we've gone into print, uh, there's a French edition of it. There's a German edition of it. Both are really beautiful, by the way. Um, Glenat and Tokyo pop is the German. Um, and then Spain maybe wants it. Um, I think they're, they're getting the rights to it for a run. So, I mean, it's definitely getting passed around. I mean, my sort of hope is that everyone will find it because I think it's so, I love it so much. I mean, it's all down to Meredith. Like she's, she did such an incredible job on that. Thank you so much for telling me that thing about Scotty Young. I had no idea. That's so nice of him. I had no idea he'd read it. There well, you go. Scotty has his fingers in everything. Well, I really? guess so. He really does. And um, I have to compliment you um, on your um, portrayal of Deadpool. Oh, thank I, you. I thought you had a an awesome handle on the character, and it, Jason always says this, and I have to agree with him that Deadpool's seemingly an easy carry character to write, but he's anything but, because um, we like to think if it's too jokey or kitschy or, or over the top, it just seems like a, an endless string of one liners, and that's no yeah. fun. You know, I, I think he's one of the hardest characters in all of comics. Um, made made worse, no offense to Marvel, but by the saturation point, you know? Right. Uh, which, uh, you know, Jerry Dugan's run is so incredible, but Deadpool is a character that burns through a lot of plot. So it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to think of, like, new great things to do with him because he's done everything under the sun. And I agree with you. Um, one-liners don't really get it done, not the least of which, because not everybody has the same sense of humor. You know, right. it's like you need a book to have more to stand on than that. Because what's funny to me isn't funny to you know person X, Y, and Z. So um, you can't just lean on, oh hey, I think I'm really funny. 
Um, not all of us are Ryan North, right? Who's always funny to everyone all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, uh, I think he's really tough. I'm glad you guys. I'm glad you guys liked it. I mean, my big problem with him in Mr. and Mrs. X was he really threatened to overrun the narrative. Like it was really, I really had to pull back on him, you know, because it wasn't a Deadpool book. And I, I think we we ended up straddling that line pretty well. Uh, that fight scene with he and Gambit in the hangar. Uh, or oh, in the, the, the best. Those were fantastic. <laughs> I need those pages so desperately. I don't know yeah. who Oscar, who he sells his art through, though. Yeah, I loved that. It was one of my favorite action scenes I've ever written, and Oscar just killed it. I, I thought it was nicely done how Deadpool was... He, he wears his heart on his sleeve. Like, yes, he says he usually utters foul and offensive things, but I got the feeling from his interaction with Rogue that he actually maybe kind of sort of feels something for her. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that was something Jerry um, Dugan yeah. developed really beautifully in his Uncanny Avengers. Uh, and listen, I'm hardcore. I'm as hardcore in the tank for Rogue and Gambit as you can be. So when I could see Jerry sort of pushing that, I was like skeptical eye raised, like as I'm reading my comics, like, what are you doing, Jerry? I don't like this. But he developed their friendship so beautifully. Like when she kisses him at the end of Jerry's run, it feels so natural and organic and sort of lovely um, as a development of that relationship um, that it was something I definitely wanted to pick up on and play with. I mean, I think he does have feelings, big, big, big feelings for her. And it sort of makes sense to me when I look at the characters as that he'd fall for her. Um, but I thought that really helped in my writing him in Mr. and Mrs. X because it, it is helpful if you can, you know, amid, amidst all his nonsense, if there's truth and emotion there, right? And you can feel him actually feeling something. It, it makes a big difference. Right. And she also keeps him on a very short leash, which speaks yeah. to the, her, the intelligence of, of Rogue. Like, she's a smart character, which, yeah. um, in your hands, which we didn't, <laughs> we didn't really see a lot of that intelligence in the Claremont run. It was mostly, I mean, yes, he did flesh her out, but to the point where it, it became, woe is me a lot. Whenever Rogue was featured, it was like, oh, I can't touch anyone. Yeah, woe sugar. is me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the repetitive <laughs> sugar all over the, you know. Oh, you're right, yeah. But, I mean, there was... A funny bit of trivia. Mm. So, uh, you know, around the time that the X-Men animated series came out, they also had that first incredible run of Jim Lee trading cards, right? Mm-hmm. Hell yeah! I would love to have them. I, yeah. I have I have two sets of them actually. Oh nice! Have, <laughs> You're the best. That's great. <laughs> my brother bought me a beautiful set uh, recently that's all like in sleeves and that look gorgeous. And then I have the set from my teen years when we used to play war with them, which would never work today. But Scott and I were very agreed on power levels uh, back then. <laughs> oh, it worked. It was honestly like some of my best memories are playing war with those cards with my brother. Um, but one of the things, so they had those power stats on the back, right? And this 15 year old Kelly was angry as hell at Marvel comics for the only thing as dumb as rogue on the intelligence level on those cards were the war wolves. Oh boy. Damn. 
It was Warwolves and Rogue had a two. Every other single out here. a three or higher. And I was like, that is some horse shit. Yeah. <laughs> so you were playing Marvel Overpower before it was even a thing. Seriously, yeah. She's like, get over hero clicks. I invented that. There you go. The um, shifting briefly for a second for another licensed property outside of Jim and Nancy Drew. I absolutely... And this goes back to the fantastic artists you end up being paired with. I am a huge fan of Marco Cicchetto and, and you wrote the Captain Phasma story, which, you know, when Vince and I talked about, uh, the force awakens and, um, the scene between Finn and Phasma and, and how, you know, that ended rather abruptly. And, and we pick up, after that, basically, I know you know before Marvel, before Disney bought Marvel and 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 Star Wars, and um, I know there was a lot of talk like back when Star Wars was at Dark Horse. There was a lot of hands-on with with Luke's film, and and obviously that might not be a big deal anymore. But how how much how much free reign did you have to write the Captain Phasma story? Well, I mean, listen, Lucasfilm was obviously very involved. And by the way, Marco Cicchetto is amazing. I love that dude. Uh, what he did with that Phasma series is incredible, especially because... That's so attractive, Matt. You know. Especially because he wasn't... I, I don't know what he was thinking when he signed on, but he was surprised that they weren't going to let us show her face. And I was like, Marco, come on. Of course, they're not going to let us take off the helmet. Like... This is a big movie around this. They're not going to let us do it in a comic book. And he was like, I'm so upset. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I was like, welcome to my world. Because <laughs> very early on, they, I knew they weren't going to let us take off the mask. But then I found out they didn't want interior narration. And at first, uh -huh. I was like, I don't even know if I can do this book now. Like, the mask and the, and they're like, well, Darth Vader doesn't really. And I was like, oh, my God. And so when I told Marco, I was like, listen, you have no idea how hard your job just got because I, she's a super laconic character. She doesn't talk a lot and we're not allowed to be inside her head and we can't show her face. So hello, my friend, we got to do a surgical <laughs> on this motherfucker. Well, it's you really tricky and thank god I had him because oof, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could have done it with anyone else. Um, so Lucasfilm was very involved, but I found them very, you know, they had these very specific parameters, which we had to work within, like we, we can't take off the helmet. Your directive is to get her from here to here. Mm -hmm. And we don't really think we should be in her head. Um, we don't think we should have that interior narration, but then they were like, but you know, whatever you want to do. And I was like. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Sometimes a death sentence, right? You're like, oh my God, that's too much freedom. Like, I don't know. So um, I knew I was coordinating a little bit with um, uh, the writer of the novel, uh, Delilah Dawson. And um, so I knew more about Phasma and her personality than we've gotten in the movie and like where she came from. I knew some of that stuff. And so you know, we just set out to draw some parallels in this planet that she lands on to 
sort of the trauma of her youth as she's on this mission hunting this guy down. Um, and honestly, they were very flexible with it. I think the only things that... The, the only real thing that they told me no on that I was frustrated by was that I wanted to open with her fighting a monster in the trash compactor and then using <laughs> like this acid blood oh, nice. to escape. And because to me, I thought, and maybe, you know, this is maybe a failure of my pitching, although I did push back pretty hard on it because I really wanted it. You know, I wanted to to do an homage to that scene we all love, but to take it up about 50 degrees, right? And just really turn up the heat on it and make it super intense and violent and show sort of this incredibly ruthless character getting out of that scenario sort of on her own. And I was really excited about it. And I still today wish they'd let us do it. Uh, I think it would have been a better opening than, okay, fine. We're just showing her stepping out of it, you know? Um, but I couldn't convince them. They felt like it was too much of a throwback to, to the old thing. Uh, I think they're wrong, but (laughs) most of the time they were right. So I have to give them that. Um, they were really great to work with. They were really friendly and smart and, um, really open to ideas. Um, you know, I, my experience, it's funny because my experience working with Jordan, that was my first experience working with Jordan as an editor, Jordan and Heather Antos. And, you know, they, they do a really great job on that of sort of stepping back so that you don't have too many editorial voices. Like they sort of, they sort of become these managers of that. And like, they're, they're really good about stepping in and helping Lucasfilm understand when they're missing something about comic. Like, oh, wait, no, it's going to be fine, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, they really they really embraced that, that, that strange role you have to have as someone who's negotiating both creative teams and, you know, this huge, big company um, that, that has a lot of demands that it has to meet. Um, one of the things that I think was the best about Phasma is that it was one of the most well-oiled, on-time, perfectly scheduled things I've ever done in comics. We had a lot of lead time. We had, we, we, everyone stayed really on schedule. And so we hit the market at the perfect time with these double shipping issues in the fall to the lead up before the film. And then, and there was so much hype about it. And then and then the trade hit between Thanksgiving and Christmas so that everyone, when the film came out, could get the trade for the holidays. It was great. I wish more things in comics worked like that well. Mm. I think, I mean, based on... I, I think you really nailed her voice uh, uh, in, in these four issues. It, it definitely... There was no... Um, even if... You know, you never saw Phasma if it was from her point of view, and you didn't know who which character was actually doing the uh, the the report. Um, it it just it was great all around. I I, I know the um, I've fallen behind on a lot of the, especially the Star Wars ongoings. I think like Aaron's Jason's debater down is pretty much I think the last time I was really all in, and so it's been a couple. It's been a at least a year or two since I've been reading the Star Wars stuff, but 
I saw the um, let's say your name attached to the phasma, and after after reading Mister Mrs X and and Hawkeye, and it was pretty much a no brainer. So I, you you and Mark did a phenomenal job. Thank you so much. It was one of the one of the things that was great for me about it was phasma was very different from anything else I'd done at that time. It's still different from anything I've done at this time. I mean, maybe Jessica Jones is a little darker and a little less sort of quippy, but, um, you know, it was fun to tread in very different shoes. Um, it was a good, it was a good time. Especially considering there wasn't really a wealth of information on the character as far as the films go. I mean, I think Godzilla appeared more in the legendary movie than Phasma <laughs> did in, in the two, you know, the two films. But um, so you you basically had to create everything from you know mold this this character out of clay and just run with it. I mean, I think that yeah. I mean, I had the information of the novel that they were developing, which which informed a lot about the character. Is that where the uh, think- the flashbacks came from? Yeah, yeah, the the, fla- the flashback. I mean, it was only like two panels, but still, there was. Yeah, yeah, we tied that sort of. You know, that was sort of the only glimpse you sort of get in her head. Um, but I think you know the one thing that really broke the character open for me, and I think it was a thing that a lot of people felt in the movie, or a lot of things I heard, which was she's supposed to be this badass, but then she immediately caves under questioning and and Lucasfilm was like that's because Phasma unlike a lot of believers Phasma only serves one master and that's herself and in that moment the way to save herself is to sell out the empire and she doesn't care she's not a believer and I was like oh that's interesting like when they started talking about that that just broke the character wide open for me. And I know that's a lot of what is pursued in, in the novel um, as well. It's just this idea of Phasma will betray anyone. She's a survivor. That's all she cares about is what's the way to survive. And at the time for her, the way to survive was to hitch on to become very powerful within the empire, you know, but when you're facing a blaster and like, hey, lower the shields, that's the way to survive, you know? And so that became a really fascinating thing to explore. And uh, we had a really good time with it. Yeah, it shows. Thanks. All right. We got to get back to Hawkeye because I got to tell you, Kelly, I, I, genu- I hope it comes through so far in our chat that we love really everything you've been doing. Uh, and I mean that's that sincerely. Great. But but Hawkeye was one of those books that uh, – just got me in them feels. Um, <laughs> I, you know, you mentioned Leo Romero. Um, he, I think he's really young, right? Like he's like he's in his 20s. crazy young. It's yeah, it, it's it's dumb, stupid that he's that talented at that yeah. age. Yeah. Um, but it's illegal. I wasn't reading. Um, full disclosure, I didn't read Hawkeye like when it was first coming out, and then. And then I caught up on it, and uh, and I was like, man, how was I not reading this off the shelves? But it just seemed like a book where you guys all clicked, you know. And yeah. um, and I guess one of the things that really um, s- spoke to me, and I don't want to speak for David or Vince here, but uh, about that book is that you know you you basically you and like and then on the other side like like Jeff Lemire with 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 Clint Hawkeye, you, you guys were following this you know arguably like the seminal 
version of of Hawkeye ever, right? In the in the you know in Matt and in David Aha's like run. Um, and the cool thing I thought about your run with Kate is that uh, it very much was evocative in that if you were just beholden to that to that prior run, this felt like a, a worthy successor. But I think um, as the series went on, you know, a, a little more careful critical scrutiny would argue that it was very much its own. And, and what I mean by that is that, um, and again, you can tell me if I'm totally like off my rocker here, but, but I feel like you made Kate um, like a little frenzied, a little human in a way that like when she was in fractions run, she was more just like the, the badass. She was like the one that, that, that had everything under control and Clint was the, you know, the screw up and she was kind of the, she was younger, but she, ha- she was almost like the adult in the room. It's like when you have a, a parent who's maybe just, you know, a little crazy and you're the, you know, you're the adult. And the, and the, well, it, but for you, it seemed like Kate was more vulnerable, like more, a more, like more human. And, and I think that's carried through in the West coast, but um, I, I presume that am I, am I off base there? Or was that? No, your... no you're not off base, but with a tweak, I would okay. say, which is, and, and please understand, I've never in my life had a conversation with Matt Fraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, that Hawkeye run is one of my favorite comics of all time and probably will be when I die. Like, I just love everything about it. But my take on it, and again, I've never asked him about this. To me, you see two very different Kates in his run. In the David Aja stuff, it's Clint's, my take is, it's Clint's POV of Kate. And in the Annie Wu stuff it's kate's pov of kate so in the david stuff in new york kate is perfect because that's how clint sees her she's the far better version of him in clint's eyes but kate knows she's a screw up and in kate's own eyes she cannot get her shit together Mm -hmm. and so she's sort of stumbling around in los angeles she can't quite make things work. A trailer gets burned down. She ruined a thing, you know, like, so to me, um, the Kate we had to use and should use is Kate's version of herself because Clint was not going to be in the book for the most part. And because it was a Kate's POV type of book, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to take a drink here. So that was my approach was that, as much as I love perfect Kate, um, that was someone else's view of her. And so that couldn't be what we pursued, which is why we get the more scattered, younger, haven't really figured it out yet. Kate, which I think lines up very well with the Fraction Annie Wu stuff that takes place in LA. Yes. Now, did you... That's totally fair. Did you... you, Was your love of Kate born... Uh, in that uh, series, or was it born with Young Avengers? Um, I liked. Yeah, uh, you're talking about the uh, not the Gillen McKelvey. No, 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 no the original. The, 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 so yeah. you're talking about the old, the yeah, old yeah, yeah. Origi- quote unquote original Young Avengers, right? Yes, um, yes. Or maybe I don't need the quotes. I guess it is the original Young Avengers. <laughs> yes. uh, so uh, <laughs> I, I like that stuff. Um, I I think that. I think that that's sort of strong and I like it, but I don't respond to it the as with as powerful a level as uh, the mm-hmm. fraction stuff, which, okay, sure. you know, in fairness, we're talking about fraction 
stuff being some of my favorite comics of all time. So, of course, I don't. Like, that's an impossible sort of thing to live up to. Um, so I, I like the origin stuff of Cade and all those young young Avengers of, uh, uh, adventures, but I I definitely drew more from the Hawkeye stuff, for sure. Sure. Um, I, I gotta ask, are, are, who, who gets credit for the, for the bullseyes? Because I love the bullseyes. Well, um, <laughs> I think it's everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. my idea was that... Actually, I think it was Sauna's I because I felt like we were missing something, and so we were talking about a recurring element or something. And I think she was. I think she said something about maybe it's something with the way Kate sees, or something that we could play with. And I was like, "That's it." And then I was like, "I think it should be Bullseyes." And then, um, so then, so then we wrote that into thing. It we wrote. I wrote that into the script. And then we played with it a little bit, and then there was a, a level of, of Leo playing with it, how it should look. And then one of the big levels was we went through several passes with Jordy about how it, how they should be colored. Like, should they be this purple? Should they be gradient? Like, I mean, many, many levels of let's get these bullseyes right if we're going to do it. So uh, I was really happy with how it all turned out. It was sort of everyone coming together and throwing in their two cents to make something better, you know? For sure. Uh, Hawkeye was, Hawkeye was a a collaborative experience that uh, with no disrespect to any of my other teams, which for the most part have been incredible. I'll I'll probably be chasing that my whole life because it was, it Mm -hmm. was really effortless. Like everyone really liked each other. Everyone got along. We all had the same vision. It was, it was just really, really effortless. Um, and I don't think that comes along every day. Again, it goes back to the thing I said in the beginning. Like, even if everyone is great, it doesn't mean everyone's a good fit together. Like, it's a very finely tuned machine, you know. For sure. I mean, you 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 know, you referenced early in the conversation that that it is a business, and um, we can't forget that. And I, um, you know, I remember reading, like, I remember the news breaking that that sixteen was the last issue, and then reading it and um i mean is it can you speak to or is it is it like fair to ask like were you able to end it the way you had intended or did you have to truncate it or um yeah yes and no i mean when we first started i was promised 12 and then i found out we were getting canceled at 10 and i was like you guys can't do this to me like it's planned for 12 and then we were able to grab 11 so I rejiggered things so that we could have 11 issues and we could end it at 11. And that's why you end up with, and then they uncanceled it and they were like, you get one more arc plus this single issue, which turned into one of my favorites, Hawkeye number 12, which is drawn by Michael Walsh and is the uh, team up with uh, Wolverine and, uh, Honey Badger. Yeah, you got Gabby's voice really, really great. It was Thank great. you. It was yeah. oh, it was so fun to play with them. Uh, so so we got that one off, and then Leo came back for the for the final run, which was twelve through sixteen. I mean, it's a lie to say I got to do everything because I was trying to do for good or ill. I was trying to do the thing that 
I think comics in say the nineties really got to do whenever they wanted, which was seeding future stuff, right. That you're going to develop. And I think it's really important to comics, but I also think it doesn't work that well in the current model. Um, you know, a great example of that is I was building a lot of really cool stuff that I wanted to do with Dazzler. And then we got canceled at 10 and that was it. And I've never been able to get my hands on Dazzler again. So all that stuff that I was developing sort of got dropped. Like, oh, hey, let's deal with this. Why does she resurrect? Why can't she die? She's got the M pox. Like, you know, but all that stuff ended up dropping. And so it's a real tricky it's a real tricky thing because in order to have a dense layered book that can keep going, you have to build those plot lines. Like yeah. what's the continuing story of Kate's mother and her father? What is the deal with them? How are they connected to mask? Why are they connected to mask? Like all of that stuff. But you know, you don't know how long you're going to get. So well, I, mean, I tried my best to tie it up. So it felt like, a, a reasonable end to a story in case we never got to come back to it. Um, and then I was able to pick up on some of those threads in West coast. Um, and then sort of the same thing is happening, right? Like I'm just going to have to leave some of that. And you hope that leaving those threads behind will allow someone wonderful to come in and pick them up and do something mm -hmm. great. And you live in fear that someone not so great will come in and mess it all up. So it's a, you know, it's a gamble. Isn't it interesting that, um, you know, you've, you've mentioned a few times how the business has changed. I, I was thinking about a time I remember hearing Bendis talk about, uh, you know, the ability to write a, you know, a B plot and a C plot in his work and have those kernels brewing. Um, and, and, you know, like with, with Tom, with Tom King, who's, who's a friend of ours and he's been on the show a bunch of times, you know, he's in the midst of this hundred plus issue run on Batman, which because it's Batman, you know, and he freely admits this, it's, you know, Batman being Batman, regardless of who's yeah. writing it guarantees he gets to do the hundred issues. So he gets yeah. to have these really layered nuanced things that he can call back to 20 issues later. And yeah. it's a, it's, and he, it's not lost on him. What a incredible opportunity that is one that he's never likely to have again in his career no matter how long it goes so you know you kind of touched on it. i remember reading these you know issue 16 and thinking well we gotta find out what's going on with 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 kate's mom like it's like you have to they have to give you a vessel whether it's west coast avengers or some other vessel that we find this out so yeah without i know you guys aren't allowed to uh sort of talk about stuff that's embargoed but can we at least hope that we're going to see more of Kate's mom at some in some way? Yes. I mean, she's already popped up in West Coast Avengers. Yeah. And we'll be getting some big reveals about her mm -hmm. um, before issue t or through to issue 10. Okay. Um, but it's not going to be, you know, we're not we're not getting to go forever. So it's not going to tie up like I like. And I mean, I'm, I'm mostly upset about, you know, I mean, because you know, the, the, the Derek Bishop thing is the thing that I picked up from fractions run, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. you get that development of he's with the new wife and Kate's pissed at him and she finds out of his ties to mask. And then, so we turned that into something else in Hawkeye, but you've also got that thing of like him going full villain where they've basically put the villains have put in New York have put the Hawkeyes on like a kill list 
And Bishop is like, okay, he's like, all right, you know, he's like agreeing that he doesn't have a problem with it. Like, so, you know, Fraction built that in. And then I just tried to come in and, and build upon that. And um, it's still going to be a thing that's out there that I hope either I'll get to pick up someday or someone else will, you know. For sure. So, so Captain Marvel, I mean, talk about the timely book, right? I mean, you, you get to, to take over uh, the character right before she has her major film debut. So, um, you know, um, what's that like? Is it Was Captain Marvel a character that meant something to you prior to, you know, you getting an opportunity to write her? I mean, was she someone that you, yeah. you, 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 glocked, you grokked on? Yeah, I think, um, you know, she. funnily enough, I think when she was old Ms. Marvel, I she was not my favorite character. Um, I had that same issue that I had with Dazzler, where it was like Rogue and Carol were seen as enemies a lot of the time, and I was Team Rogue, therefore I was not Team Carol. Um, but, you know, a, a good creator can turn you around on anything, right? Like, um, this is my favorite story about trying to be open-minded is not so very long ago when um, Scott Snyder was fairly new to Batman comics. He was writing Detective, and it was when Batman was dead, quote-unquote, and so he was putting Dick Grayson in the suit, and I was like, nope. <laughs> I was just like a hard no on that. I was like, no. <laughs> You're like hard pass. I love Dick Grayson. He's Nightwing, which which is such a stupid thing to say in and of itself because he wasn't always Nightwing. He was freaking Robin. So it's already a dumb thing to say. But I was like, no, Bruce Wayne is the only Batman. I can't. I can't have this. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What turned into some of my favorite Batman comics of all time? Black Mirror. I would hold it up as one of the greatest Batman stories of all time, that trade. Uh, Dick Grayson in the Batsuit fucking phenomenal it's incredible <laughs> um and it's the story i always go back to of you have to keep an open mind and if your mind is open you just be amazed by what you find and for me a lot of that was kelly sudaconic on captain marvel uh she just completely reinvigorated that character for me um you know i think the name helped I think graduating her to Captain Marvel, it feels so right for the character, giving her the sort of uniform instead of the, the thigh-high swimsuit. Like, you know, it just it was just <laughs> everything sort of coming together at the right time. And I just fell in love with her in a whole new way. And so getting to do it now is sort of this weird thing where it's sort of coming to her for the first time in a new way, but also revisiting the first character that I got to write for Marvel. And of course I got to write her a little bit in, uh, in a force as well. So it's, it's been awesome. I think um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do it at this point in time, because she's poised to be so huge. Uh, it's also a lot of pressure. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's a little stressful. Well, so far so good. So you're off to a good start two issues in. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's going really well. It's going really well. I think people are really responding to it. Um, you know, I have an incredible team, which helps Carmen Carnero oh, and Amber I know, seriously, with that. Yeah. And it, it just, it, I mean, it's been said a couple of times this evening so far, but when um, 
when Jason talked up the first issue, your first issue of Captain Marvel uh, last month, um, it caused me to go out and and get the first issue, and now now the title is is on my pull list, and it's you know Carol Danvers and Vincent. I mentioned this a couple week, a couple episodes back. Carol's never been a, a character that. Uh, caused me to I, I i was never excited oh okay carol's in this book i gotta get it so it's it's between carol danvers's captain marvel rogue gambit of all characters <laughs> quentin um i you you have you, you've had this ability in in the titles you've written so far that i it's as as vince said earlier like any character when when hands well is is a really good character and i so kudos to get me to actually um buy and read and enjoy stories with with characters that i never really gave a second thought to well thank you so much i mean that's really high praise it means a lot um i i do think i i hope that a lot of that is because i fall in love with them and then it's just sort of a palpable translation of that you know of like let me show you why i fell in love you know um, I was like you just said with with you know Bruce's Batman, not Dick. I, when um, Vince and I, we usually get in, in into these little things when Green Lantern's concerned, and you know it's it's for <laughs> me there it's just Hal Jordan, and and it, and it has to do with obviously you know with not, not so much your age, but but what brought you to the dance? What was the character that was? Right. Um, I, I love the New Teen Titans, so I, I the Wolf and Perez stuff. Um, yeah, you know, Dick Grayson became Nightwing, but I still, I still think of when I think of Robin, I, aside from you know, Don Dutton or, or, um, Jim Aparo, I'll, I'll usually think of Perez with, and, and with, with the little green shorts and, and the, and the fairy boots, but there's just, um, it's, yeah, it's so because you do love characters like rogue and and that has has shown through it's it's a lot of people are very quick to to dismiss or be dismissive of of characters that they don't like if if um you know you could go online and see somebody if, if someone's going to argue who their favorite no, no one ever says favorite it's always best but if you know what they actually mean is favorite who their favorite green lantern is and then if if someone if someone mentions kyle and and then you know faces crinkle up and and people start dragging that person and that character just because but that's why do you care why they like that character if that's what brought them into the hobby if that's what brought them to the medium and we're all talking about comic books who, who cares but i i seriously um i think if if more people took the time to understand why um, and the fact that you like that, that that rogue is one of your favorite characters, it does show in this comic. And and if yeah, I've I've read rogue comics written by Claremont, and and they never did anything for me. But here's somebody who actually appreciates the character and wants to see it. What what, what wants to see the character thrive? Um, yeah. It's. I think your I think your point about favorite versus best is so important. Um, Especially because I get very weary of, even though I was someone who played war with my X-Men cards, as an adult, I'm very weary of arguing over most powerful or who would win in a fight <laughs> or whatever. And like, I know that that's a nerd thing, 
that we all engage in on some level, but it's not a writer thing because my job as a writer is to create a narrative in which the person you expect to win doesn't win or, you know, like it's my whole job to like tell an interesting story that you weren't expecting to read. Right. Or that you weren't expecting to like. So, you know, I, I get people coming at me sometimes with like, you know, is, is, is rogue an Omega character? Can you verify? Uh, (laughs) She one of the 12. (laughs) First of all, who am I? Like, why would you listen to me? Like, I don't. That's a Brevoort question, not a Kelly it. Thompson question, right? <laughs> What's that? I said that's like a Tom Brevoort question. Like, uh, yeah, like, yeah right? exactly. Yeah. Ask someone who can really decide those things, like Tom <laughs> Brevoort. Um, but, but I also don't care. Like, she's an incredibly <laughs> powerful character. Like, why would we care about some bizarre, made-up metric? You know. Like, she's an incredibly powerful and flexible character. She has sort of limitless possibilities because of her power set in the hands of of the right writers, right? But why would we waste our time arguing if she can beat up She-Hulk or if she can bench press more than Thor? Like, I don't care, you know? Um, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I, I don't know when I flipped the switch from being a fan who was interested in that to being a writer who was like, that shit just gets in my way. Like, you know, I also am very anti the overpowering of characters just from a purely selfish standpoint. It makes it hard to tell stories. Like it makes it hard to tell stories in which characters don't nerf themselves when everyone can punch a planet out of the sky. You know, it's like, well, what are the limitations here? Like, you have to create all these false narratives and all these these increasingly difficult obstacles for them to overcome. You know, it's it's frustrating. You know, that's a good point, uh, and I think that's what Donny Cates is probably going to encounter with this new Guardians of the Galaxy because they're all powerhouses. They are. Listen, and, if yeah. anyone can do it, it's Donny. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, he's a great writer, but I mean, you, you have all these ridiculously powerful characters on one team i'm expecting it to just segue into the traditional guardians after a while but that's neither here nor there um just back to the the um favorite character um topic that we were talking about i i don't i think it's a testament to your skill as a writer that you could actually make david and myself care about rogue of all people right yes um and I can't hammer that home enough. Rogue can't you make you care about Storm, Vince? Never. Nope. Never. <laughs> That's a challenge, Kelly. Never. Let's not go there. You don't like Storm? No. No. Who doesn't like Storm? Well, yeah, raise his hand. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing. But um that old whatever what's that issue where she fights Cyclops for leadership of oh. the Yeah, no, we're not gonna talk about that. Oh, no, why don't, don't why? no. No, Let's just get no. into the Morlocks I, while we're no, at it, too. I've hit the nest, right? Callisto for life. Yes. Uh, we're not. I'm but talking I, about that bullcrap issue 201. No. Oof. Keep going. Oh, goddess, please. Um, <laughs> but I forgot where I was going. But no, I mean, it's just, it's a testament to, to your skill as a writer that you can get us to care about this character who was heretofore relegated to cheesecake and let's just see how little of store of storm oh gosh of of rogue's costume we can we can display her in well now she's a uh 
in my mind anyway, after reading the Mr. and Mrs. X, she's a real character now. And yes, yeah. there are moments of cheesecake in the book, but that's not her sole reason for being there. When Beast gives her the 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 bracelet, uh, the power dampener, I was, yes. I was those feels. I was like, oh, my yep. man Hank coming through. Yes. <laughs> My man right there, taking care of business. Well, after sh- after screwing up bringing the kids to oh. the present, I mean... <laughs> Listen, we can't all be perfect. We can't. Kelly didn't write that story. Yeah, no. some, people, some people in issue one were mad about, like... I don't even know that they were mad at me for, like, writing a bad beast, or they were just mad at Beast for being a dick, like, because he was, like... <laughs> I don't want to be a is being dismissive of Rogue's, you know, discussion. Right, yeah. It's like, he's like, oh, gee, I wonder why mutants don't spend more time perfecting mutant suppressing power technology, Rogue, which seems completely like a thing to me that he would say. And sure. she's like, all right, all right, I get it. Like, Meanwhile, in comics, there's been a thousand times where there's been power dampeners put on. <laughs> You're right. Like, that's yeah. definitely technology that already exists, right? In yeah, comics, exactly. lexicon. I, you know, so I I was like, when people were sort of, well, why is he being such a dick? I was like, you guys just wait and see. I'm going to make mm-hmm. some of you tear up in issue six. Yeah. Oh, he comes through with the bracelet. I want all of you to shut up. <laughs> yeah, it, it was now, great. Our, our, um, is, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, our, 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 our Gambit's cats named after actual cats you know? No, they're, I didn't name them. They're um, they they are from the I think from the all new X Factor run with oh wow okay. this run is where they oh, first yeah. up. Mystique of all people gave them to him. Um, I think she saved them from Sabretooth. I can't remember. It's uh, some weird nonsense. Like maybe Sabretooth was killing kittens. I don't know. Some something crazy. Mm-hmm. And she gave them to Gambit and he's had them ever since. And they're named after like um Disney um yeah, it was Figaro. Figaro. And, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oliver. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Makes sense. So, yeah. So when I when I when I think of your your Marvel work I, I a word keeps coming to mind which is whims, whimsical. In the sense that, you know, I think uh it's always impossible to recapture the uh like the joie de vivre you have for your the music or the comics or the TV or the movies that you first kind of fall in love with. And often when we're teenagers, right? Like that stuff always stays in your heart is the best because it's when you first experience it, when you first have those, yeah. you know, those, 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 those little excitement. But, you know, when I think back to reading superhero comics when I was young, um, the thing that I remember about them and, and, you know, it wasn't always this case, but just that they, they were fun. Like the heroes were great at their jobs. And so, even though they were facing daunting circumstances, it wasn't always with this gravitas. So occasionally it was, but 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 more often than not, like you knew they were going to win. Like they were badasses, and so there was this joy, this happiness, this banter, this repartee that they had in the midst of it. And uh, I think we kind of got away from that for a while, and we've 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 had these cycles. But I feel like with you, your books very much have that. Like, and it, and it really it 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 certainly is the case from. From A Force all the way through, where where to West Coast now, where where you know your your characters are are there. There's banter, there's repartee, there, you know, even even in the most dire of circumstances, like hanging in cages, right? Like uh, like you know, th- th- there's there's jokes, and um, but not at the expense of of the action. And I just, um, you know, I, I'm tr- I was I'm trying to pinpoint why that is like is it is it just because those are the comics that you love to read and so you want to is it a conscious thing or is it just the way that your mind works because it does seem to be an undercurrent in most of what i've read of yours 
I think it's probably like so many things. I think it's probably a greatest strength, greatest weakness situation mm-hmm. where um, it's what comes really naturally to me is the voice of the characters and how they interact with each other and sort of assuming a relationship that if you've been reading forever, you know more about it. But if you just come in, you don't know about it, but you can most of the time understand it just from the way the characters communicate with each other. Like all of that's really important to me. And I think to go to your point about sort of the nostalgia and the thing you come in with, I mean, what, what did those of us who loved X-Men comics when we were kids love more than when they played a softball game or had a picnic? Like we loved that downtime. Um, I think something fans get, um, they forget is that part of why those downtime work are because they come in between right right big thing like you can't just have them playing softball all the time there's no stakes there's no interest like there's nothing to drive the narrative so you know you can't just do that all the time but we live for those intimacies that you get yes uh in in the sort of downtime i do try to especially because of the way monthly comics work and you need in order for most books, you know, Jessica Jones is an exception where we can get away with less punching, for example, in an issue, but most superhero comics, you know, there needs to be X number of pages of some kind of punching action uh, in every book for the most part. Uh, Sure. There are exceptions, but for the most part, yes. And so I find myself trying to, work in as much sort of charm and chemistry and relationship into whatever they're doing. And I think that I'm pretty successful at that. Mm -hmm. I also think that, and let's bring back Donnie Cates into this conversation. Donnie can do something I can't do yet. Um, Maybe I'll never be able to do it. I don't know where he thinks much bigger, you know, I think much smaller. Um, And I think that thinking smaller, not that Donnie doesn't write great crackling dialogue, but I do think my smaller thinking benefits me when I am like, Oh, what are these characters relationships and how do they quip within the scene and how do they relate to each other? All that stuff really helps me, but I really struggle when it comes time to be like, here's the big villain and what do they care about and what are they trying to destroy and, and how am I going to smash all these things together and break all the toys and then put them back together in really interesting ways, you know? And I, I actually talked to him about it at one of the summits because I recognize in his work something that I want to be better at, something I want to learn to do and that I'm just not there yet. And, and there's a real come to Jesus moment for me of, is it, that I'm not good at it or is it that I'm not trying or haven't really tried? I don't know. But, you know, his advice was, you know, don't, (laughs) his advice was basically don't think about it. Like you have to go into it like you can break everything in the world and it doesn't matter. And then, you know, you'll put it back together or you won't. And I think he, it was great advice that really illuminated for me my weaknesses um and and some of it comes from being just a boring person um like my (laughs) life my life is very boring i sit on a couch or in a chair all day and try to write things and surf the internet and read books and comics and whatever i have a very small boring life and 
I part of the reason it's like that is because you know having a big exciting life is a pain in the ass like there's a lot of cleanup involved in that there's a lot of aggravation there's I just want things to be easy man and I see myself doing that sometimes with my work and that's not interesting Mm. and so that's a way in which I try to not do that right like here's a here's a great example one of my favorite movies of all time is Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. And when you're watching that, when you're watching him, for example, during the big giant, you know, end of movie chasing that's just like all 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 trying to get back to the citadel, right? And all he's all Max is trying to do is get back on his vehicle. Mm-hmm. Every time he almost gets there something goes horribly wrong and he basically has to go back to start. And that is a real lesson for me in stakes and tension and breaking things because the boring Kelly Thompson is like, just let him get on the thing. Like, <laughs> let him get on the thing. But that's not interesting. What's interesting is that he has to keep trying to get on and in, in over and over again, He's thwarted in these interesting, fascinating, violent ways, and we love it, right? And so I try to think about that, and I try to think about Donnie when I think about writing bigger stories and pushing myself beyond the things that come naturally to me, which are smaller, intimate things. I'd like to be able to do both. Sure, and that comes with time. I mean, I would say, um, you know, I, I would say when I think of of the way you're describing the the, the micro versus the macro, you know, someone like Bendis, I think, is at his best doing the micro, whereas someone like Hickman, I think, has has is at his best doing the macro. Right. Like seems like Hickman takes this big, huge concepts and, you know, plans these things out and then kind of fills it in from there top down. Whereas I think Bendis's best work is when he can really um, illuminate characters and their individual relationships. Right. It, which is not to say neither are incapable of the other, but. I mean, I think you're obviously certainly more than capable of it. So basically you're saying we should wait a few years before we expect you to helm a big Marvel event. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that I'm working toward that. Mm -hmm. You know, another problem I have, it's related, I think, is that I immediately check out of any media when it's time for the villain to talk about why he's doing the thing he's doing. Like, I'm not, you're not a monologuer. Yeah. I just, immediately I'm out. (laughs) It's one of the reasons why I like antiheroes so much and why, for example, Magneto is a great villain because he doesn't present to me as a villain. He presents as another character I care about who can get away with, like I'm already invested in him. And so, you know, it's not like cutting away to a new villain and learning his origin story. It's a complex Magneto black and white world or whatever, right? Where people have got to die because, you know, I believe in the survival of my species or whatever. Um, And so, you know, for example, in the Rogue and Gambit miniseries, it was really important to me that that was sort of a mystery that they were solving. Like they were sort of bad detectives, right? Mm -hmm. And then I didn't ever want Lavish, the villain, to be doing the soliloquy thing. And so we built in this device where rogue absorbed her memories. And so we got to see 
like a thing about how she came to be and what the problem was. And I think if we'd had a little more pages, I mean, that's the constant cry of any comic writer, my, my, my kingdom for my fucking kingdom for some more pages. (laughs) Um, I, I think I could have landed it a little bit better, but at the end of the day, there's this balance for me between how much is me not successfully examining all the elements as I should and how much is that's not what the story is really about. So I don't care and neither should you. Right. Right. Well, I think you have a thing with comic fans because they get very obsessive. Like you would not believe the number of like questions and Tumblr asks I get about some fucking random thing. And I'm like, dude, it's not what the story's about. It's uh. not that character. Maybe someday someone will turn that thing you're asking about into a story. It's out right. there dangling thread, so it could be. But no, we're not going to tie that up with a little bow. It's just part of life that right. it floats out yeah. there like a thing, you know? So uh, that balance is tricky for me, and I'm always working on it. Well, I, I think you have the right approach because isn't it the character moments and the um, introspective uh, aspect of it that inform the punches because without it they're just you know ciphers beating the hell out of each other they're, they're, yeah, I mean, they're... It, definitely, it definitely is for me a hundred percent but I think I mean we've just been on the phone enough now that we're on the recording enough now that I'm starting to talk a little bit about how much of that is me making a choice and how much of that is me just doing the thing that comes easily to me sure. um, is okay. And the other one is maybe less okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, so um, as I mentioned, we, we did ask our, uh, our, some of our patrons, you know, that uh, you were coming on. So if they had questions and uh, we've covered a bunch of them, but um, one from our, uh, a, a good friend and patron uh, Hassan, there were actually a couple that were kind of related to this, but I'll, but I'll use Hassan's cause I think it's the most succinct. Um, you know, he, he was curious that, you know, um, you know, as, as a, as a woman writing comics, like how do you balance the need to promote your own work and be present in social media with, you know, the, I think, unfortunate side effect of today's day and age of social media of dealing with, you know, frankly, like the bigotry and sexism that comes with, you know, some of the people on social media. Like, does that, do do you even notice it? Do you just like not pay any attention? Like I just, I guess you know what he's getting at. Like, I guess, how do you deal with the reality of like there being internet trolls and, and, and and negativity that also you know maybe flies in the face of I hope the lots of positivity that's out there too. Um, it's a it's a mix to be honest. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like I'm way better at it than I I know I'm way better at it than I used to be, mm-hmm. and I'm very liberal with the mute button now. I don't block a lot unless I see like an actionable offense of like harassing someone and and something I can report. I don't usually block. I just mute, not because I'm some nice person, but because I enjoy knowing that they're screaming into the void and I can't hear them. (laughs) I also enjoy denying them that thing where they screen cap you and go, Oh, I've been blocked. No, fuck you. You've been muted. And I don't even know you exist. That's (laughs) how it is. Uh, 
And I'm very liberal with it these days. I used to be very discerning about it. Now you don't even have to say anything bad to me. You can just be being a dick to other people in threads. I, I can be reading just someone else's thread and see someone say something just so wrong. And I will go to their account specifically to me. They don't even know I exist. And I'm right. like, Mute, I don't ever need to hear from that person again. You talk to people like this online. I don't ever need to know. Like, go away. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the same. I, I, in fact, I was I actually made a comment on Twitter the other day that I wanted to thank the uh, the the Gators, as I call them, for being so liberal with their use of tagging because it makes it really easy to like yes! search for the tags and then just block them, even though yes! they don't follow me and they don't know I exist. Like, I'm just preemptively blocking them. It makes it really easy. So that's yeah, nice. Anytime, but anytime there's a new bit of PR of something I'm writing, I get a few more accounts and I'm like, hey, there's something that can be muted. That's great. Awesome. Sure. So uh, I that has been incredibly valuable to um, my mental health. Um, there, there's certainly an element of when you're getting caught up in it and you're feeling anxious that can m- trigger your anxiety even more about like, well, now I don't even know what's being said and how vulnerable does that make me feel? That's a thing, mm-hmm. but there's nothing you can really do about it. Uh, I would say the other thing that I'm not so great at, and I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I don't go to cons. I don't do cons or signings or any of it. And, and why is that? Uh, it's mostly because of those same people. I see. Um, okay. Before I, some of some of it has nothing to do with that. Some of it is health related. I hurt my knee years ago, and it's been a staggering nightmare ever since then. And a con is just like a really physical thing that is very hard for me to do at this point. Um, which, you know, cons are for young people. I am no longer a young people. So, so that's a, that's a thing. But the biggest reason is because even before I was a comic book writer of, of any note, um, you know, I was getting threatened and harassed and including, I mean, it only takes one person to say something like, you're never going to know if I'm the one hugging you in that photo for you to be like, well, great. Like, because now I don't know. Mm-hmm. Now it's very Jessica Jones and the Purple Man. I Now I have no idea. I don't know who's a friend or who's an enemy or, you know, if someone will actually hurt me um, or if they just want to make fun of the fact that I'm fat. Like, I, I don't know, you know. Um, so I've really limited any of my exposure. I try to do as many podcasts as I can. I keep my store open so people can get signed stuff. I do these other things to try and compensate for the fact that unlike a lot of my compatriots, like, I mean, Matt Rosenberg goes to 50 billion cons a year. Yeah, we've seen him at a bunch, actually. We go to a decent amount, too. He's so generous with Mm -hmm. his fans and with his time, and I feel really bad that I don't do that sometimes, but I just just can't. I'm, I'm trying to think about doing some in 2020, but I was thinking about doing some in 2019 and now I know I'm not going to. So, okay. you know, I don't know. We'll see someday. Well, maybe, maybe I think, I think just build off of Hassan's question in a different light. Um, you know, you've been writing comics steadily now for three, three, four years. Um, how, and again, juxtaposed against this sort of, I think absurd pocket universe of negativity. Um, how are we meaning the Royal, we, you know, us being commentators in the industry, not, directly involved but how are we doing as an industry like how do you how do you think the mission is going in terms of um expanding readership both in terms of like just broadly expanding readership but also more like you know in in expanding readership to 
to to new you know to to new readers to younger readers to to again a, a more female audience to yeah are, are we succeeding are we are we like partway there I mean I'm just curious like now that you're in it like how do you think we're doing I think it's hard to know I you know there's so much noise all the time right and mm. it's sort of a constant cycle of things being released and promoted and talked about and cycled in and out i don't know i mean i i think that captain marvel there's going to be something be announced tomorrow um all oh, breaking news not it's, it's not really an announcement i don't want to oversell it but just a thing that i think is awesome and that's really indicative of sort of the power of the captain marvel movie and it taking up space in it as a cultural movement in a similar way that black panther got to do last year mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. that really i hope changes the conversation a little bit um but i you never know i mean years ago when i ran a podcast we talked to um marjorie Liu one time she's a great interview and we asked her a similar question about you know, how did she think the industry was shifting? Were we seeing a good push towards more women? And, you know, what did she think it would take? And she said that she thought it was going to take like a moment, you know, it was going to take something with like the popularity of hunger games to shift that. Right. And I, I, maybe we're going to see that with Captain Marvel. I don't know. Maybe we're going to see that sort of shift. But, you know, it, 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 it's impossible to know because we're also happening at a time when when the publishing model is really shifting. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they Marvel chose to do Jessica Jones as a digital digital first, I guess right. I would call it. They called it digital only, but that's misleading because then they collect the trade as a print. Mm-hmm. But so it was digital only for the single issues. And... I feel really mixed about that. Like on the one thing, the first guy through the wall gets bloody. So I knew we were going to get bloody. Um, I knew people were going to be mad about it. And a lot of people weren't going to find us. And probably we were only going to get X number of issues because it's a new thing. But at the same time, you know, the comics are sort of moving in this direction and you have to be willing to be flexible and try new models. And if some books being digital only, means more variety in the content that I'm sort of for that, you know? Um, at the same time, I, it was really hard to get anyone to review Jessica Jones. Like, you know, on social media, I see people raving about the book, talking about it should win awards and it's so good and, and nobody's paying attention. Everyone's sleeping on this book. Nobody's doing it. And yeah, no sites are reviewing it. What? Because it's digital. I, I like, I don't know. I don't know. Cool. So, we're in very weird, uncertain times. Uh, I don't know which way it's going to go. Kind of a corollary to the last question, and you're, and you're leading into it, is just, you know, to, to your free perspective, how is digital going? Because you're writing a digital book, as you noted. I mean, um, I guess, you know, there's been this sort of uh, timber in that uh, people see the diamond numbers for whatever they're worth, and, you know, ICB2 writes them up and so forth, so on, but then nobody sees the digital numbers, and, you know, there's this narrative that books like uh, like Kelly Sue's Miss or uh, like G Willow's, Miss, you know, Miss Marvel was a huge, you know, again, this is allegedly like the narrative is that it was right. a huge seller digitally. Um, 
you know, which which kind of like more than made up for the fact that maybe the, the print books weren't selling. But, you know, I would imagine that's very much case by case. So, I mean, is do you think digital's helping, you know, like expand I, the market or do, the, do you just not the, know yet? Because the answer is I don't know. And I think that's a fucking problem. Mm-hmm. The fact that I'm, quote, inside, like I'm in the room at Marvel People are having conversations with me and letting me write big books at Marvel, and I still don't know what those numbers are, what they mean, how they affect things. I think that's a huge problem. Um, my understanding was the West Coast number one numbers, for example, digital were, I mean, we got a second printing on the first issue as well, but the digital numbers were really big, I heard. But did it, did it mean we got more than 10 issues? No. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, we're, I, I guess it's, it, it's very hard to be in it because it's very frustrating. But I just try to remember that we're literally in like the baby stage of this, right? Like mm-hmm. we're, we're barely have legs climbing out of the primordial ooze on digital comics and how this landscape is changing and how the mass market book market and how scholastic fits into it. And all of that, you know, we're all in flux. I mean, I think the only thing we can take confidence in is comics aren't going anywhere, you know, they're important medium that people decry the death of every year time since time immemorial and they don't go anywhere. They're important medium and they're going to stick around What's that going to look like? I don't know. Did, did you just give me the heartbreaking news that, that West Coast is coming to an end? Cause, <laughs> I guess that's the most officially I've said it, yeah. Right. Uh, no, a lot a bummer. of people were speculating online because it wasn't in May solicits, and mm-hmm. doesn't really like you to talk about it, so I've been being sort of cagey about it, which I hate and find to be really stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, it's like one thing... <sighs> I don't know. The the people on my social media are for the most part really wonderful, supportive fans. So when they ask me questions like that, I want to just be able to answer them and it's hard to not really be able to, but yeah, no, we're done. at Uh, Oh man. That's a bummer. I'm a, I'm the biggest, probably literally when I say this, I mean this literally, I'm the biggest domino fan on the earth. So (laughs) I, you know, to your point about it being a new world, I mean, uh, I, I was as much as I would love for domino had to have gone for like, 50 issues. Um, you know, I, I, I took the 10 issues for what they were, which were fantastic and I'm happy. And, you know, I, I tip my cap to David Baldion and Gail for giving me 10 awesome issues. And, you know, we got, and so, yeah, I guess that's like you said, it's the new, that's the new comics, right? Like an yeah. offer two and then, well, and now you're getting hot shots. It's a lot like yes. Hawkeye and then West yes. coast, right? Yes. Maybe hot shots will be even better. I mean, I feel like I, I, I haven't read a lot of that domino series, but it seems obvious that they're putting some higher uh, level stars in that black widow and black cat look like they're in it. Right. Um, And so hopefully that will help. Um, You know, I mean, when we launched West coast, one of the things we were really excited about once we finally decided on that cast was that those were a lot of characters that had become homeless and, you know, when you put them all together, you're like, well, maybe the numbers will be good for what Marvel wants to see in a team book. Like maybe, maybe all those people, but I feel like most of those people who loved, you know, Gwenpool and who loved Hawkeye, like those were all the same people. So it wasn't like you were gathering together 
a lot of different fan bases into right, one book, right, you were right. like, oh, all you people who loved all those individual things, you can all come to this one thing, and your numbers are about the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so... I do feel like the the biggest the biggest frustration for me in comics for sure and we're seeing it with West Coast obviously is because I've seen so much praise for West Coast. It's like people discover that book every day and they're like, "Where has this book been all my life?" and I'm like, "Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> here we are. It's, I wish you had discovered us 6 months ago, you know." Mm-hmm. And I, these things take time to find an audience, and I understand that it's not fair to ask Marvel to just bleed money while we look for that audience, especially because it doesn't work for every book. But it is really heartbreaking to feel like people are finding you, um, and then they're just finding you when it's already like going to be wrapping up. You know, I don't know. Sad. That is a trick. I mean, that is so different than when we were all coming up in comics, right? Where I mean, a lot of these books were not great sellers. I mean, heck, I mean, X-Men was a – people forget X-Men was not a great seller, right? That's why it was – that's why we had 30 issues of just reprints before, you know, Claremont. I mean, they gave it – literally, they gave it, what, seven years before it became a hit? Yeah. You know? yeah. No, like you said, that's unreasonable in today's market because the world's changed. But, but, uh, but yeah, it is frustrating sometimes that there's not a, a mechanism yet, and whether it's digital or a combination, that lets some of these books have a life of their own at, you know, lesser sales rungs until they, you know, find a, yeah, a audience. Yeah, I wish you'd at least get a shot at the trade before before those decisions are being made. But, you know, I don't, I don't get to see the numbers. I... I was really given the excitement I saw over West Coast Avengers. I was very surprised by our, even though we went to a second printing, I thought our first printing numbers were pretty low. And so I knew we were in trouble, like right when we started Mm. and I was disappointed because I felt like it didn't really line up with the excitement I was seeing. I mean, there was a lot of anger also, but um, you know, you're always going to get that. So um no matter what you do, whatever new thing you try to do, you're going to get pushed back from certain factions. So I was really surprised that we didn't sort of have bigger numbers right out of the gate. Um, But, and I think that sealed our fate a little bit because comics, any comic, even Batman is a war of attrition. You just have to start at a high enough number uh, with your story that you can weather that attrition. Um, between those ebbs and flows of, oh, people are reinterested in this because whatever, there's an event, there's a thing, there's a death, there's a marriage, there's a movie coming out, you know, whatever the thing that reinvigorates it back and builds your numbers back up. Um, And so I knew when I saw those first West Coast numbers, I knew that we were already in the danger zone because our, that first number was not high enough to Mm -hmm. through the attrition for very long. I hoped that, Maybe we'd get far enough along that the trade would come out and it'd be a huge hit. And that would be that. I don't know. Um, A little bit of this maybe is my fault. um, Because our trade should have probably come out earlier since it's only the first four issues. But it was initially supposed to be six issues. But we ended up changing the second arc to add an extra issue to sort of do it right. And listen, that was the right decision for the story. But... I think the trade probably would have been out sooner um, if we had realized we were going to break it up differently. Um, so maybe if the trade had been out sooner, maybe it would have helped. I, I don't know. I don't know. So it's a, it's a sad thing, but it's also hard to get too upset about it because this is just the way modern comics work for the most part. 
Right. I mean, I, I would hope that the quality of the work and the quality of the feedback goes a long way in ensuring that you continue to get uh, continued opportunities. And, and also, I, I mean, I think as with anything, right, as you've kind of proven yourself, I would hope you get, um, you know, opportunity to do a, a more, let's say, Greenfield book. I mean, Captain Marvel would probably be the first of those, right, where like, you know, the character in and of itself should help, right? I mean, it kind of like, you know, so I hope that you have more of those opportunities coming as well. Yeah, I think Captain Marvel is the first time they've ever, ever given me the sort of quote-unquote A-list right. book um, where it's a character that they're expecting to pop for whatever reason. Um, so I hope that that continues and that there's more of that in the future. At the same time, I mean, I'm always going to be the person in the room going, when can we bring back next wave? Like, I like the weird. Yes. You know, like, I like the weird characters who you know i like the band of west coast misfits you know so it's hard for me to sort of argue against like oh yeah you know no don't give me wolverine i'd rather do uh you know whatever this guy over here not wolverine so well based on your 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 style of storytelling and the fact that you've already given us the tech net i only hope that at some point in your uh exclusive run at marvel that uh Either they pitch you or you pitch them a, a, a relaunch of Excalibur because I'd love to do Excalibur. That was you guys see that um, Alex Segura um, comics DNA that went around uh, on Twitter earlier yeah, this yeah. week, last week, and uh, one of mine was Excalibur. I think it's oh, nice. Years. Okay, great. Yeah, the appearance, first appearance of Technet. I fucking yes. love Technet. That was my biggest mistake in Mr. and Mrs. X. And when I look at it, there's not really anyone. I maybe could have taken out the Star Jammers. Like, maybe that would have been the thing to do. But when I was writing TechNet in issue two, I was like, I've made a horrible mistake because I just want to write these guys for the whole whole first arc. I love them so much. They're so so dumb and amazing. I just love them. We're going to get our listeners to write, write in a campaign to Sana to push for Excalibur. With you at the helm, so yeah. Well, you've been extremely gracious with your time. I, we've kept you very, very long. So we haven't even gotten to touch on Nancy Drew. Now, I presume um, Nancy Drew and Sabrina, like you have specific carve outs because you are Marvel exclusive. So I guess they they they, they carve out you carve out certain titles. Is that how yeah, that works? Yeah, I was already working on. I had Ghostbusters and Nancy Drew. I was already working on, so we had carved that out. And I knew that we were going to try to do another run of Nancy Drew, so I put that in. And I had had several pitches in. Um, for for Archie stuff at the time, and I didn't think any of it was going to go, and it was a complete surprise to me when this Sabrina came out of nowhere. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I had carve outs for that stuff, and I have carve outs for a couple creator own type things. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about the Sabrina thing. I you know sometimes you get into it and you're working with new collaborators and you're like yeah sure this will be fine and man i saw um veronica and andy fish turned in their first um pencils and inks for the first half of the first issue and i was just bowled over like it's gonna be so much better than i thought it's so good awesome (laughs) yeah i'm pumped that's great well um i mean thank you so much for the time you were a fantastic uh guest because you're you're your candor is, is, is awesome. So I appreciate that. Um, Hopefully and uh, get me in trouble. Oh, I doubt it. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah. Um, but no, but, but seriously, Kelly, I, I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself. We, we loved having you. And, uh, I was going to ask if we were going to meet, meet you at a con sometime this year, which doesn't sound like we will. Nope. So, um, it's the future someday. 
All right, fair enough. Until then, we'll just have to uh, be fans from afar. But um, is there anything um, that we didn't cover that you, you wanted uh, the audience to know about? Or I know you, you mentioned your website. What What is your website so that people can go in uh, and well, pedal, pedal, you know? So my website you. is actually under uh, construction right this second. Oh, okay. Um, but the store is up, which is 1979 store, which is a little confusing. Okay. Um, but the best place really to, is to find me on Twitter. That's where I am all the time, which is uh, at 79semifinalist. And I, I, I could, I, Vince likes to laugh at my misfortune about this. I completely understand um, your, your tweet from earlier this afternoon about uh about ordering food and not no 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 the one about the sandwich and and it just being completely wrong and 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 we were in chicago one year and we went trekking to a restaurant and everybody had a fantastic time uh but i didn't so i i know i know exactly what it's like when when you're let down very strongly about sandwiches it was a devastating blow today Feel you. Especially because I've been sick, so I haven't been feeling well, and I got really excited about the sandwich I ordered. And and let me tell you, we really missed out because here's the hard hitting questions we should have been discussing with things like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates. I want to know how that works because I had to rate this service and food badly. But I don't know whose fault it is. Is it the restaurant's fault for getting my sandwich wrong? Or is it the driver is a middleman who is placing the order and he did it wrong? Who's at fault here? These are the hard-hitting <laughs> questions. Oh, uh, see, now I talk about going down a rabbit hole. Uh, my my uh, real-life alter ego, I'm a portfolio manager. And, uh, and, and Postmates is coming public and DoorDash just raised $500 million. So funnily enough, I just had a meeting earlier this week all about that business model and i can tell you that the answer to your question is in the case of doordash and postmates it's the restaurant's fault because the restaurants port all of their menu data onto their sites and wow. now if it's cold it's often the deliverer's fault because they take too many orders at once sure. so but if they got the order wrong it's the restaurant's fault, That's and right. I will yeah, say just, uh, I, I, and I don't own any 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 shares of the company yet, so I'm not like plugging them to plug them. But yeah. we used DoorDash for the first time this weekend, and to their credit, we placed an order for Thai food at a nearby restaurant that doesn't had heretofore not had delivery. And one of the things we ordered, they didn't have. And to DoorDash's credit, DoorDash called me immediately back and said, "The restaurant doesn't have this appetizer you ordered, but uh, they recommend this in as an alternative." would you like us to bring that to you or do you just want us to take that off of your order? And I thought that was amazingly good customer service. That's really great customer yeah. service. That's so. great. Well, listen, I feel really good about this conversation now, independent See? of anything else I may have said, because Boom. I ended up rating the food one star because I was so mad. Sure. And I gave the driver his usual five because that's I was the right play. And it too. sounds yeah. like I did the right thing. Yeah, you did. definitely. <laughs> See, we haven't, I, I haven't, we, we, my wife and I recently moved and we have everything we need is within walking distance. So I haven't tried oh, any fine. of the delivery options yet. Um, but I'm tempted just to see what everybody else is talking about, but then I miss out on, on, on walking it's, the neighborhood. But it's, we'll it's a hard life in Portland if you want food delivered because it, well, maybe it's fine, but I came from New York City 
where even in the apocalypse, you could get someone to bring you a sandwich yeah. at 3 a.m. Facts. Yeah, facts. Uh, it's Portland has been a, a tough downshift. And I found this sandwich place that I really love that is not close to me. So it would not be convenient to like run out in the middle of my writing day. And so, and, and Postmates doesn't have them on their site, but DoorDash was, and I was so excited. And I've gotten other delicious sandwiches from this shop. Uh, but man, did they screw it up today? And I was just devastated. Disappointing. Yeah. Mm. No. Trying times of a sedentary writer. What can it I say? It is hard out <laughs> here for the writer. <laughs> Come back next week for more talk about sandwiches. And That's right. <laughs> well, I guess on that note, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for for joining us, and uh, we look forward to continuing to be internet friendly with you. And um, thank you, you so know, much I, I'm, for all yes. the support. I really, you know, sometimes you come on these things, and it's evident that even though people are very nice, they haven't read a lot of your stuff. <laughs> it's obvious you guys have read a lot of my stuff, and I really I love, love your Superman work, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to put other podcasts on blast. But there's some really very popular ones that 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 do that. So yes, I agree. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Great. Well, have have a great night. We look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Bye. Take care. Thanks, Kelly. Fantastic. I'm glad Jason used the word candid because I was going to thank her for her candor as well because she laid a lot of stuff out and it was refreshingly uh, candid is the word. But it's great though, right? Surprisingly so. Yeah. Because. We've had repeat guests on, friends, who will lean towards being candid because they know us. Right. But Kelly didn't know us until very recently when we reached out. So uh, I really did appreciate that she um, kept it 100. Right. Can you imagine uh, a return engagement? It's going to be awesome. Sure. Yeah. It's gonna Absolutely, be I can. Yeah. Yep. Sure. She's part of the family now. Yes. She's yes. branded. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you go. Whether she wanted to be or not. I think she had a good time. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I did too. You could tell. You can you can hear by the timber um and the inflection in someone's voice if they're not. And I didn't get any indication that she wasn't, you know, having a, a good time. Facts. Sure it was an obligation that she had to do. She said she does many podcasts and that's great. But even so, um you one could tell and I didn't get any indication at all. I think all the prior podcasts were just merely practice for the big event. Yeah, she took the training wheels off. Yeah. Awesome. She did her I own. the big leagues. She did her own show, so she's had plenty of practice. This is true. But, um, all right, uh, as we said at the, the, the head of this show, there's only one place to go if you want inexpensive comics. Where? Discount Comic Book Service, dcbservice.com. Get them fast, get them cheap, get them delivered right to your door. Image, Ascender number one, a dollar ninety nine. From Ahoy Comics, Bronze Age Boogie number one, two dollars and nineteen cents. And from Aftershock, Mary Shelley Monster Hunter number one for a dollar ninety nine. In your travels. All right. This may not sound like praise, but it mostly is. Because I want you to make a uh, rare trip, hopefully a rare trip, to the Walmart and pick up the DC 100-page comic giant Swamp Thing number one. It's a lousy $4.99. What do you get with this thing? You get the first issue of Bill Willingham's Shadow Pact. 
you also get the first issue of the um, Swamp Thing New 52 that was, um, who did this? Was it Schneider? Yes, the Scott Schneider. Yeah, oh, was it Schneider? Was it Lemire? No, that was Animal Man. You also get the first issue of Jeff Lemire's Animal Man in in this Hmm. book. And in addition to that, you get a a brand new Swamp Thing story written by Tim Seeley with art by Mike Perkins and colors by Jordan Boyd. Visually, it's a stunner. Perkins just totally grabs it by the throat and nails it to the wall. It's gorgeous. It's riveting. It's a, it's a commanding presence in the book. Like when you can stand up to Travel Foreman and Bill Willingham in a, in a, in a periodical, you, you're doing something right. So I, um, the visuals, I, I really enjoyed. Tim Seeley's approach to the character, maybe not so much because Seeley uh, said that this was an homage to the Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson swamp thing. And that's that's great. That that's that's a wonderful thing to do. It's a it's a beloved um, team in comics. But when we've experienced the grandeur of Alan Moore's take on the character, and you have Swamp Thing running, uh, popping out of a car trunk, uh, threatened by fire, it's a little bit hard to take. You know, here's a character that can shunt his consciousness anywhere. That there's uh, anywhere there's plant material, and you have them riding around in the trunk of a car. I don't know. It's it's um, it's like writing a uh, Superman story with uh, Kal El on Krypton. Like, what's the point? You know, the, everything that that makes the character what we know and love is is taken away. And here you have Swamp Thing just, you know, almost losing it against fire. It just it. It's weird, but um, he's with Briar, the uh, the witch girl that we encountered in the previous DC 100-page Swamp Thing uh, special, the Halloween thing. Gorgeous, gorgeous art. I just got to question the this kind of status quo for, for Swamp Thing. It's just it's weird. It doesn't make sense to me, but it is. Here it is, and it, it's great to look at. So go out and pick up this 100-page Swamp Thing uh, Walmart giant, you get a lot of value for your money, and uh, I think it's a worthwhile purchase. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, in your travels, this is the um, first part, I believe, of a four-issue miniseries written by Scott Tipton and David Tipton, pencils by David Messina, inks by Elisabetta D'Amico. Um, it is Star Trek The Q Conflict, and one thing I really like about Star Trek in comic books is when they can really have fun with the different eras in the franchise. And The Q Conflict, uh, as the name suggests, Q is involved. However, it's not just Q, and it's not just one particular set of Star Trek 
officers. You have um, you start off in at it would be present day in the future Star Trek Next Generation crew, um, but you also get the original Enterprise from the first five year mission. Voyager, while they're still lost in space, and Deep Space Nine, a few years after Cisco takes command of the station. Um, and what brings them all together is this, for lack of a better term, Q conflict. And uh, every couple thousand years, these omnipotent beings basically war with each other. And, um, you know, one such war may have even caused the big bang. And, and, uh, so they don't, they really no chance of, of whatever's alive to, at the time surviving and everything kind of starts over. But the, the omnipotent beings are, if, if you have watched any of the original series, you will recognize the other players in this game. And, um, each of the four groups of 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 officers are going to think of contest of champions. You have everybody who's either for the grandmaster or the challenger, and and you have um, you have the original series. Kirk's crew are playing for Trelane, and Picard's crew are playing for Q. Cisco's crew is playing for the uh, Organians and Janeway's crew for um, for for the Metrons. Who the episode where where Kirk fought the Gorn is where they appeared. Um, Trelane is one of my favorite foils um, for Star Trek, and and of course there's there's the connection between Trelane and and Q, but to see this this play out, so I mean, they brought everybody together, and and everybody, you know, there's, it's a couple of years. Yeah, it, it, I, not so much worried about the time travel or anything like that, but you just have it's 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 a lot of Star Trek and a lot of um, a lot of uh, godlike beings involved. It looks great. Um, it, it's a cool setup. And uh, and and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the second issue. But yeah, I um, I, I I didn't really pay so much to this, pay attention to the solicit. But once I had it in my hands, I flipped through it. Um, I knew it was going to be something that uh, I would dig, and 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 I am so far. So in your travels, Star Trek, the Q conflict. Very nice. And I have a thank you for us. Um, I mentioned it in passing last week, but I now have the books handy. And uh, one of our listeners all the way from Brazil, Mr. Joao Luis Antunes, uh, asked to send a package for all of us. Um, but, uh, you know, shipping from Brazil is no easy feat. So he uh, sent one package to me so that I can disseminate to you all when I see you guys in a few weeks. And it was quite the haul. It was three copies of two different graphic novels. Uh, one is Dante's Inferno, 
by Hunt Emerson with Kevin Jackson by Knockabout. And it is a uh, R-rated cartoon comedic look at the aforementioned play by Dante. Uh, Not play. Poem by Dante. Um, And then the uh, other book is Casanova's Last Stand, also by Hunt Emerson, uh, from Crack Editions, Vince. Um, And this is very naughty, not for children's eyes, lots of sexy time. And it is a look at uh, Casanova, the great lover, at at near at the end of his life. And it looks quite, quite funny and sexy time. So um, I did read Casanova's Last Stand already, but I won't get into it because I want y'all to be able to at least read it and see it before we talk about it. But uh, much love to Mr. Antunius for sending us the goodies. Thank you. Got love for you. Um, And then in your travels, um, much like Dap, I'm also going to recommend the first issue of a four-issue limited series. This is from Dark Horse, written by Curtis Pyers, art by Antonio Fuso, who many of you know from his fantastic run with Chuckles in G.I. Joe, uh, with G.I. Joe Cobra, uh, with colors by Stefano Simeone. That is weird, number one. Weird, (laughs) W-Y-R-D. It is a story about a gentleman named Peter Weird, P-I-T-O-R-W-Y-R-D, who really um, visually uh, and and characteristically reminded me a lot of, of John Constantine, only Peter is an American, um, but he's somewhat like um, Mr. Impossible. He's he's seemingly immortal, or at least very hard to kill. He uh, is is an alcoholic, and it seems like, based on his first issue, he frequently attempts to kill himself to no avail. Um, but um, in between suicide attempts, unsuccessful suicide attempts, he works for the Department of Defense. He is their, uh, their Mulder and Scully. He's the one that they ask to figure out and solve... Um, things that they can't solve or explain. He's their, uh, the Winston Wolf of the supernatural, really. And in this first issue, it's basically a one and done where he is sent to the Crimea to take on a monster. Um, and it was great. It was great. I thought it was well-paced. I love Fuso's art. Haven't seen him in a while. Don't know what he's been up to in between uh, this of late. But, um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the first issue, and uh, uh, I'm on board for the rest. Vince and I did too. I know. Oh, okay. Wait, you Make listened? Sure. You listened to the last one? No, but I saw the notes. Oh, okay. There you go. Look Good old you. show notes. You prepping? Yeah. David, um, did you read the first issue of Daredevil? The, uh, I, I, I paused. I I have it. I I read the first two pages, and then I wanted to get back to Kelly stuff. Um, so I have it. I will read it for next week. Yeah, okay. same. I have it sitting here. I haven't read it, though. Do you have the director's cut? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, is it helpful? Is it better to have the director's cut? Well, I'm not going to say anything, but I just want to... I, I'm I'm curious that if you have the same take on uh, the, the uh, imagery as I after you're done with it. Okay. I mean, it's... it's I'm... Listen, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give the brother a chance, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm giving this a shot primarily because of Chichetto. Okay. 
I didn't have any problem with the story, and I love Chichetto's art. Yes. All right, but we'll see what you say when when after you've read it. You've read it. Okay. All right. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We have to thank Kelly Thompson for being an amazing guest. And we welcome her back anytime she damn well wants to. Absolutely. Yeah. In the meantime, if you want more of the same around these EOC parts, what you got to do is come to our Facebook page. We're always having some fun there. The, we're on the Twitters. And uh, we got this Patreon thing. Patreon.com forward slash 11 o'clock comics. Check that out. And uh, in the meantime, you know the drill by now. In the meantime, say goodnight. David. Night. Hope I don't sound like that. David. Nice. You can hope. It's good to have hope. Sweet. All right, boys. Say goodnight. Goodnight. Eat.